describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. I'm James. I'm Dan. Where are we from today, Dan? Well, still in the abyss, unfortunately. And uh, from uh, the information you provided to me, it's an underground land of tunnels and eternal darkness inhabited by demons that constantly hunt each other by the sense of smell. I don't want, <laughs> I'm not sure yet, but I think this sucks. This doesn't sound, I think it's getting real. It is, it is getting real. Well, well, I mean, and it's, uh, what is life imitate art because, or art imitates life because it's not getting better. We thought by descending into the abyss, <laughs> things would be getting better. But, you know, when the historians come through and look back at our ruined civilization, maybe they're going to use this as the markers of when civilization was over. Because we were pretty optimistic as we started in our abyssal descent. But now I, I, I don't see think what it's getting better. So what you're saying is we, we should embrace the fact that we may be living in a historical time, a yes. real, you know. Right. They're going to talk about <laughs> talk about this for centuries. Well, we could be, you know, one of the last few archives left of this time in history. And they'll, you know, because we're mocking, not really mocking, but this is getting more serious. So it's, uh, it's pretty scary stuff. But uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all out there. Um, so yeah, we, uh, uh, people, uh, we changed up our opening. So hopefully people like that. So, uh, that was, well, a, wait, it was designed to warn people away. Right? Yeah, they were, that's right. It was supposed to warn people away, but people like it. Okay. So, um, Dan, why don't you introduce our guest? Sure. So it's our pleasure to welcome to Grog Talk, Michael Mornard. Uh, Michael is of course famous having played in both Gary's Greyhawk campaign and Dave Arneson's Blackmore campaign. So, uh, uh, Mike, thank you very much for being on the show. Welcome to Grog Talk. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Thanks. Oh. Welcome on. Yeah. Of course. And so maybe we could just maybe take us back to the early 1970s. <laughs> um, well, I got started into it through wargaming. Um, yeah, I, well, I've known Rob Kuntz since seventh grade arithmetic class. And one of the members of the Lake Geneva Gaming Club was dating the sister of somebody I was in Boy Scouts with. 
So that's how I heard about the gaming club. And so I started with Wargaming. And then in August of 72, I was invited over to Gary's place on a Sunday afternoon to play this new game that this guy called Dave McGarry had. And the name of the game was Dungeons of Pashakata, which later became the Dungeon Board Game. And we played that. That was that was neat. And then about would have been October of '72. Uh, it was after a miniatures battle at Don Kay's house. Don and Rob and I were standing outside of Don's garage, and Rob said, "Gary's got this cool new game called Greyhawk. You're a bunch of guys exploring an old abandoned wizard's castle full of monsters and treasures and stuff." And I said, "Sign me up." And, and who was at that dungeon game? So, so you played dungeon first. Who was at the dungeon game? Um, if you remember, I know we're asking <laughs> the questions yeah. from very long ago. I, for certain, I remember Gary and Ernie, Rob, me, uh, the late Tom Champney, and I think that's all. That would have been five players plus Dave McGarry. Did you know before that dungeon game, did you know Gary from the Wargaming Club? Yeah. Okay, okay. So tell, can you tell us a little bit about your impression of Gary when you first met him? Um, well, the very first time I met him, he came in to talk to Don about something in the middle of a miniatures game. So it this, this guy just rushed in, had a 10-minute conversation, um, put out his cigarette in the sand table, got cursed out roundly by Don, and rushed out again. <laughs> and <That's> awesome. <laughs> I, I later figured out that, or found out, because Gary and Don had been friends since like age eight. So it was not an accident that Gary put out his cigarette butt in the sand table, nor was it an accident that Don K bitched him out for it. And this is, this is two old friends thoroughly yanking each other's chains. Yeah, that's but you awesome. didn't you didn't know that at the time. No, no, not that I was sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> no, like fourteen. But then when I actually met Gary more as Gary, um, he was the first adult that ever treated me like a peer, hmm. and that was pretty awesome. Um, some people, there is this. I don't know, rumors and cried. There's this belief that Gary was a brutal cutthroat player. He was a good gamer, and he thought that going easy on somebody was an insult. And so, you know, if you were playing a game, Gary played to win. And, you know, that's that. And so, t so tell us, so you, when you hear about this game, what's, what's your impression? Because I think I've read somewhere else where when you heard about this game, you were very intrigued, right? Maybe some other people weren't as much intrigued, but you were very intrigued. Well, it, yeah, it just, I, I, you know, I told you exactly what, I mean, that's almost word for word what Rob said. And yeah, I, I, let's go, I'm ready. And I was... I was invited shortly after that, 
and at the end of the first night kind of staggered out going I don't know what game we just played but that was wonderful mm. did, did you and live say again did your character live yes because Rob and Ernie and a couple other people had started playing a couple months earlier so we weren't all first level and which there are people who absolutely freak out if somebody else's character is higher level than theirs. I don't think I ever played a game in Lake Geneva where everybody was the same level. It's just, uh, and it's, it's especially silly, in my opinion, when okay, you have a fourth-level fighter and a fifth-level fighter, same hit table, same saving throws, the only difference is the number of hit dice, and if the guy with the fourth-level fighter got lucky, he could easily have more hit points than the fifth-level fighter. So, and and I think I saw somewhere else where you'd mentioned that the way Gary played was there wasn't necessarily balance between the levels of the characters and the monsters, right? That you could certainly we've joked about this on this show where some of these old school modules you have you don't have a lot of balance but if i remember it, you said it was designed that you if you saw the warning signs you knew to stay away correct right and there's there's two sides to that one part of it is modules were a different beast and because originally at least the modules were convention tournament adventures. And, okay, you've got, you know, 10 teams of nine people. How do you declare a winner? Okay, whoever's, you know, whoever's body falls furthest from the entrance is the winner. So a lot of the modules are way more lethal than anything that, you would ever do in a regular campaign. And that understanding was not well transmitted, he said in an understatement. So, but yes, in the regular dungeon, you know, for instance, on the first level of Greyhawk Castle, there was a uh, nest of like six trolls who are going to make absolute utter hash out of any first, you know, a gang of first level characters isn't going to last three melee rounds. But, you know, if you ignored, you know, the broken skulls, the bones that have been gnawed, the horrible stench of troll that your dwarf is telling you about, if you don't have a dwarf, why not? If you ignored all of that, Gary's attitude was, well, that's just too bad. You know, and it reminds me because James. You've mentioned this to me before. We've talked about Keep on the Borderlands, you know, the famous module. And I think what changed is a white in there, which if, right. if you happen to go into that uh, that cave first, you're in real trouble. But, James, if I recall, your opinion on this was there was a lot of, you know, Gary gave a lot of warning signs. That, yeah. Right, that, that, that it was going to be something pretty nasty down there. Well, there, there are signs, but there's, as you know, I think the challenge is, and, and like what Mike was saying is, you know, the, you, you, you get with a group, there's some tropes that every group kind of aspires to or knows about, like the idea of the caves, logically, if you look top down, 
the easier things are at the lowest level towards the opening. It gets more complicated. If the players don't realize that it's kind of the, the farther you go in, the more deep, and they just chassay to the back end, and you don't pay attention, as he was saying, you could get owned pretty quick. Um, but you also have to go through like four other encounters before you get to the white. There's 20 skeletons. I mean, there's a lot of heavy duty things. So if you're literally first level, that should be a warning sign. Danger, you're, 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 you've gone. <laughs> and, and he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. No, there is no way we fought everything. And, and I think that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. Well, I've come to realize that's one of, I didn't even realize this till recently, one of the huge advantages I had of having played Dungeons of Pashakata first is that first, I already knew that the further down you go, the tougher things get, because that's the way dungeon works. And I also knew wandering monsters are nothing but trouble. Um, in the original game, Dave McGarry had a piece called The Roving Monsto, spelled with a W at the end. I no longer rem I asked him like 20 years ago, and he told me, but I no longer remember. But, you know, and he just rolled, the, you know, every turn he'd roll, a, there were six levels, he'd roll a six-sider. No, there were five levels, I think, and he rolled a six-sider. And whatever, you know, whatever he rolled, that was the level The Roving Monsto showed up on. And it, it would attack whoever was there. And the best that could happen is that you could drive it off. It had no treasure, so it did you no good, but it could, it could wound you, which made you drop a treasure, or it could, I don't remember what it was called, but you had to drop all your treasures and go back to the surface. So, you know, re wandering monsters are bad news. They exist only to deplete your resources. And why, you know, don't fight every stinking thing that wanders down the corridor. And, and have you guys ever talked to Brendan LaSalle? No. Uh, no, we he haven't. Did, he did X Crawl, which, okay. you know, talk, you know, there's, I don't know if you know anything about X Crawl, but. You can, heard of it, but not. You can take it as either a really dark dystopian future, or a total tongue-in-cheek look at everything. I tend to go much more the tongue-in-cheek way. But anyway, I was talking to Brendan once, first time I met him, and after we talked, he said, "Okay, I have one question: Why gold for experience?" And I said, "Because that turns wandering monsters into a hazard instead of." Mm. XP on the hoof and his jaw dropped open. He went, my God, that's brilliant. And yes, uh, there's a lot about D and D that I think is brilliant for a certain kind of game. Now, you know, you don't have to like that kind of game, but don't say it's a bad game or poorly designed rules just because you want to play a different game with it. Yeah, and maybe you could describe a little bit what Gary's games were like. Because I think, James, you've talked about this where, you know, when you played D&D, &D, it was basically what? You, you knock the door down, kill the monster, take the treasure. Um, you know, not a lot of backstory, things like that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what Gary's games were like. Well, 
this there wasn't a lot of backstory. I personally still, you know, I limit my, I try to limit my character's backstory to 25 words or less because the game is about how cool your character is now, not how great your character used to be. Right. But, okay, here, it, it was first and foremost a game. And one example is, you know, rule three or volume three, it says doors automatically open for monsters and automatically resist being opened by players. And all monsters see in the dark, but if they're hired by player characters, they lose that ability. Now, as world building, that makes no flippin' sense whatsoever. But to build a particular kind of game, it's a fantastic rule. I, I have described it as Greyhawk Dungeon was the funhouse from hell. Because you know, there was a bowling alley for giants on the second or third level. <laughs> but at the same time, if you got hit by one of those 15-foot diameter bowling balls, you were dead. So... You know, that combination of silly and dangerous was something that Gary was really fond of. Um, let's see. And, you know, I have heard it said, you know, there was no role playing in the old days because, you know, there's no diplomacy skill and there's no barter skill. And it's like, the people who say that obviously didn't notice that Charisma has something like three times more text dedicated to it than any other attribute. But the the role-playing was emergent in play rather than built into the rules. Just like if you've ever played poker, the rules for bluffing do not exist in poker. Right. But bluffing is one of the fundamental aspects of playing. And role-playing, you know... I mean, one, okay, here's an example. We were trapped in a you know locked down dead end corridor, whereupon Gary promptly rolls the wandering monster die, and we turn around and there's a chimera. And this was before publication. We had no idea how tough this thing was. I mean, we'd read the story of Bellerophon and Pegasus. It's like, oh, you know, that chim the chimera was a badass. Yeah. But you know, so you know. But then, the, you know, the dragon says, or the dragon head says, er, what are you little shrimps doing here? And Ernie says, er, uh, um, good day, your wickedness. And, uh, do I look good to you? Or um, bad day, your wickedness. Uh, that's better. I mean, that's worse. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, and Gary, and, you know, for like 15 minutes, Ernie negotiated his, and Ernie was like 13 at the time. You know, Ernie negotiated his brains out to get us out of that scrape alive while having to reverse all good, bad words. And, and it was awesome. And I would posit you can't write rules for things like that. And and, and and where were you playing? And so was it at Gary's house, I assume? Yeah, and it was at Gary's house and right next to the kitchen 
at 330 Center Street is this little room about six by eight feet. And he, he had his desk and there was a window and he had a daybed there and shelves and full of books all around. And, you know, there would be three to four players because it wasn't that big a room. And that was where we played. And is that and it was yeah. the other thing is it was very tense. Gary was good at building the mood and you pay, you paid attention. You know, if you were if you started running off at the mouth your character was down in this lightless hole in the ground full of ungodly monsters blathering his brains out. And if you got into an argument with another player, the two of you are standing there screaming at each other and said light, lifelet, lightless hole, and the local denizens would come to, you know, interfere, watch, sell popcorn, you know, whatever. But <laughs> so you were in a sense, you were in character all the time. And you all listened. Sometimes he'd even pull out the drawers of his filing cabinet and hide behind him. So all you heard was the voice. Oh. And you better be listening because if you miss the fact that, you know, 40 by 40 foot room with a door to the north and the west corner and a little niche in the middle of the south wall, if you miss that little niche, you might have just missed something important. And well, I was just going to say, as far as his play style, because um, you, you mentioned about that, and that's always fascinating, these original game. Uh, you know, in, in the modules that we've, that we've gotten, you know, he can be very verbose in some of his descriptions. Was he very verbose when he would describe rooms, like you said, 40 by 4, or would he be very utilitarian and you had to query the information out of him? Some of both. He, he, would, he would describe a little bit. You know, that this is a room with an arch gallery on it and there's cobwebs hanging down. You know, it's, it's a fine line between making the place totally sterile and... And then the ears, I get the idea, get on with it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, not every room was described in detail, but there was enough to give the imagination a lot to hang on to. And um, also, one thing we did, how you ask a question matters. Like, okay, we're in a room and we hear voices coming, and this bedevils me as a referee. You know, if people say, what's in the room? It's like, so, but if you say, is there something in the room I can hide behind? That's a different question. Mm, yeah. Because it could be anything from, yes, there's a pillar. To, and I'll admit it, most of the time I'm winging it. You say, is there something in the room I'll hide behind? Okay, I'll roll a die. Is there or isn't there? It's like, yeah, there's a tapestry, you know, the old moldy tapestry hanging on the wall. Or, yeah, there's a, you know, dumped over table that'll give you some, you know, give you some shelter. Well, 
Well, let's face it. If you're doing your own dungeons, doing dungeon dressing for about 100 rooms when they're not going to go into 80 of them is a little tedious. Uh, yeah, and plus, and the other frustrating thing is, okay, the rusty broken dagger that is in the room as dungeon dressing. No, it's not an art of, you know, um, Jolly Blackburn lampooned the hell out of this in Knights of the Dinner Table. Yeah, it's not an artifact. It's not an ancient magic item. It's not the avatar of a god. Yeah, it's a broken, rusty dagger. Please, it's two in the morning. Can we get on with it? I know, but the problem is, James and I have talked about this a lot, is the problem is, is then there's that one adventure where they don't pick up the rusty dagger, and the DM's like, why didn't you pick up that rusty dagger? You know, it's like the artifact of whatever. What? Or, you know. Well, okay, in that case, if the referee escapes with his life, he's lucky. I mean, that's, that's the opposite. That's the other side of the coin of the broken bones and the skulls outside the troll's nest. Yeah. You know, if you know, it's a rusty, broken dagger, but it's on a plaque hanging on the wall. Right now, yeah. right, some signaling. Yeah, were his games so? So were his games? I'm going to say plotting, and I don't mean that in a negative way, because you know. So what I what I get the sense of is that to do well in a Gary adventure, so you. You're going through to uh, Castle Greyhawk. Is that you need to be careful, right? So this is always that tension that the players want to be very careful. The minute they're not checking for secret traps, then there's a trap. But then if they check every time, then it gets plotting and boring. And and Gary, you know, famously right puts in what what the what is it? The, what's the thing in the ears, James? I mean that at the doors. Yeah, earwigs. Earwigs because right. people are listening at doors too much. Uh, were his games? You know, I get kind of board if it's if if a party if i'm dming and a party is so careful that it's it's every room takes about half an hour i get bored but is is that the way gary's games were or no yeah so 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 how was Um, it i mean i you know i don't want to die i'm a player i get it again uh, going back to the rules in volume three it says you know your you're moving some, I'd, I'd have to look, it's, it's either 60 or 120 feet a minute, which if you think about it, is a crawl. Right. And it says right in the text of the rules that it, that it assumes a certain amount of caution as you proceed down the corridor. So if it's an extraordinary, tra- you know, again, you know, you, you guys, you're going down the corridor, you know, the next 10 foot section is perfectly glassy smooth. You know, if it's if it's something that wouldn't be detected by reasonable caution, there should be some sort of tell. So, no, we, we did not spend 10 minutes checking every 10 by 10 foot square. Okay. And, and how long did you play in Gary's group? Because, of course, you, end up, you go to the University of Minnesota. Right. Just about a year. Okay. So how many games would that have been with Gary, D- roughly? About once a week. Okay. And is it true? He had a lot of people playing, if I, if I understand yeah. correctly. Right? There's like about 20. And so you'd be slotted in, I think, like a yeah. dinner reservation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, he'd call and say, hey, can you come next Thursday? And 
yes or no. And when you showed up, you didn't know who else would be there, which is another thing that makes the whole game way different. We were not one tried and true band of adventurers welded together at the hip. We were a variety, you know, rogue scoundrels, ne'er-do-wells, sellswords, and aspiring nobles and knights and whatever, who from time to time our paths drifted together and drifted apart again. And it also changes the way a secret door works. If you're not always the same party of characters, okay, the secret door you missed next week, you know, Bill and Tom and Rob might find that secret door and do something entirely different. Um, when Rob Kunz got to the bottom of Greyhawk Dungeon, he said he knew there had to be a treasure down there. And he, this is patience. He said he spent something like an hour and a half of real time searching this one room for a secret door. <laughs> he said he knew it had to be there. <laughs> and when he find, because it was just Robilar by himself, he's a fighter, not an elf. And and when he finally finally found it, there's the Staff of Wizardry, which is a pretty high-level magic item. And so, you know, there was some of that, too. You know, some, you know so, well, Rob, was, is the, hmm? Rob is the best player I've ever known, bar none. And, all right, and, 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 and what makes him, I mean, you've described some of it, what, what makes him the best player, in your opinion? <sighs> well, for one thing, he's got a virtually photographic memory. He never mapped, but he never got lost. And there were times when, you know, more than once he, you know, okay, we turn west and ten feet. Turn, is that a, no, guy, I said west, not east. Gears like, oh, her. <laughs> it's like, did they call? Did you guys call him Gygax? Did that? Did you call him by his last uh, name? Occasionally, Rob would. Okay. But just, just to twit it, not not constantly, but just right. None, the a rest little. of us didn't. Yeah, right. <laughs> so just like Don K would frequently call him Gygax for that same. But I mean, they they were of a peer at age. But okay, so there's that. He to be a good war gamer, you have to balance caution with the willingness to take a calculated risk. And he was just really good at calculating the risk, like. Now is not the time, or yep, now is the time. And very smart, very canny, uh, very good at kind of lateral thinking, you know, just brilliant. And just had that, had that perfect instinct of when is the time, you know, when is the time to attack and when is not the time to attack. And it sounds like when you described how he found that that secret door, uh, it you know in first edition the way we would do it is you you roll and it's pretty quick you know I search for for secret doors I roll behind the screen okay you find it you don't find it and you move on, but it sounds like in in OD and D and the way Gary was doing it it was more tell me exactly what you do is is that right? Sometimes, very often it would be just. Well, one thing is you had to specify where you were looking. Okay, you know, the 
10 feet from the north corner on the east wall and looking in that 10-foot section for a secret door. And again, much like the assumption of a, nor of a certain amount of caution when you're walking down the hall, some of the more common ways of detecting a secret door are simply, you know, after the 10th or 15th time, it's like, yeah, you know how to do this. And in fact, that's, that's what, at least in, mini, in Minnesota, in the group I ran at the university, that's how we eventually wound up with wishes. Uh, after a year or so of the incredibly elaborate, you know, to make sure it can't go wrong, we just sort of made a house rule that, okay, if you're going to use a wish to get back something you had, whether drained a level, somebody got killed, lost treasure, whatever. I'm not going to require you to write a 15-page, you know. If all you're trying to do is recover something, yes, burn the wish. You, you get back what it is you want, and we'll move on with the game. Right. Got, got it. And, and, and you basically, at this point in time, right, before we get you know, off to Minneapolis, mm -hmm. you're basically, you're playtesting. Right? Could you situate historically where we're at with OD&D? Because I see you're basically playtesting what's going to become known as OD&D, right? Yep. And a very important thing is, except for things like spell lists and experience point charts, we never saw the rules. Uh, we were all experienced chainmail players, so you know, plate armor is better than mail. You know, mail is better than no armor. You know, we had some basic concepts like that. You know, an ogre in chainmail fights as four men, so we figured an ogre would be about four hit dice. But that was, you know, that was a logical guess, not something we saw from reading the rules, and. That's a very different way to play. I personally liked playing it a lot better before we knew the rules. Yeah. Everything's a mystery. You know, you're, you're exploring. Oh, indeed. And that's the problem now. You know, 40 years later, everyone knows, everyone's got the DMG, everyone's got the monster manual, everyone knows the monsters, they know the hit dice, they know you need a magic, well, you need a magic weapon, you can't hit this. And and it's certainly, that's why I think it's it's kind of unfortunate. You can never kind of go back to the, that experience we all had when we first started playing um, and not knowing what we were facing. But you mentioned chain mail. And, you know, we know, of course, you know, Gary, Gary co-authors chain mail, and he was a miniature war gamer. And, and, and some of the rules just frankly drive me crazy, like the inches for feet come out of, we know, miniature war gaming. But I think you've noted that Gary didn't use, he didn't use miniatures, right? He didn't use a battle map right when he ran games for you guys if you're talking about greyhawk correct I and mean, obviously when he ran war games he did but yeah, right. gary didn't gary didn't use miniatures playing greyhawk and he you know never used a battle map dave you know we'll get into this more later if you want dave arneson always used the mini miniatures in a battle map i yeah, yeah, yeah. I have really mixed feelings on it because I love miniatures. I mean, miniatures are cool. And some of this, you know, battle map, 
I'm kind of iffy on that, but you know, some of these elaborate setups are wonderful. I mean, if you've ever seen Stefan Pokorny's stuff, and I know the name of his company, but it just fell right out of my head. Dwarven Forge? Dwarven Forge, yes. Thing. I mean, I know that, but you know. No, I know. It, it, we know the beautiful. feeling. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, well, wait till you hit 65. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. Uh, in fact, I have got him three quarters convinced. I'm doing the research. One year at GaryCon, I want to run the 12, um, 1206 Siege of Rochester Castle as a historical chainmail miniatures game and build Rochester Castle using Dwarven Forge pieces. And Stefan was like, yeah, that didn't. Stefan said, yeah, that's cool. And Paul Stormberg with his Elastalin collections, like, yeah, that's cool. So, but there's a lot of research to do. But on the other hand, I mean, it's, it's great to look at, but, you know, things like, okay, you come to a door in the dungeon. You open the door, I roll a die. On a one or a two, you're on Barsoom. On a three or a four, you're in you know the Mesozoic era. On a five or a six, there's a set of stairs down. And you can't do that in these big elaborate set pieces. Yeah, it, it, it certainly would take away that ability to be, you know, that random about things. Um so, so you, you, you remember your character, right? So we've got so many famous. You mentioned Robolar. Um, we've got so many famous characters from those early games. Do you remember the character or characters that you played in that year or so uh, with Gary? Yeah, two. Uh, mainly two. The first was Gronin of Simeria, and yes, and yeah, you know, rhymes with yeah, <laughs> yeah. and. <laughs> Um, by the way, congratulations on getting my name right. A lot of people leave off the first R. Oh. And turn it into Monarch, which Gary did for a while. And I finally pounded it into him. So when I rolled up a magic user character, Gary promptly dubbed him Lesnard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you said yes, Gary. Yeah, and then so okay, that's a laugh. You know what the heck? So yes, Gronin and Lesnard were my two major characters. And I remember when you know rolling up Gronin, strength fifteen, intelligence fifteen. You, know, you can be either a fighter or a magic user. And I said fighter. And there's all, you know, when, again, you know, the popular opinion is that, you know, it's no fun to play a fighter. Probably half of us played fighters and half of the rest played clerics. And especially in original D&D where you have the end game where you set up your stronghold and you get followers and stuff, the cleric gets major boosts you know, they hit name level at eighth level. They get to eighth level sooner than anybody else. And their God, I don't remember the name numbers off the top of their head, but, you know, their God gives them a big pot of wanga to help in their endeavors. Like, yeah, and they fight almost as well as a 
fighter, so why would why the heck not be a cleric? Where can you talk about the cleric? So where did the cleric come from? Because it seems to me that it's a bit vague. That different you can have different origins of the cleric. I've heard from some that the first cleric was in in Dave's group in Minneapolis. I've heard that yep. there were clerics in 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 the Greyhawk campaign. I mean, can different. Maybe just talk a little bit about your understanding of where the cleric came. Okay, this is what I heard from the late Bill Crawley, who was one of Dave's players. Well, the the first cleric was Mike Carr, Bishop Carr, and I talked to him a couple of years ago at Gary Con, and he said he no longer really remembers the fine details, but as William explained it to me, um. Okay, he's, there was at least one vampire player. I know for a, um, I've forgotten his name. Dwayne Jenkins wanted to play a vampire because this is when Dark Shadows was on TV. Oh, Dark Shadows. Yeah. yeah. Yep, I'd come home, you know, high school, come home from high school and everybody watches Dark Shadows. But event and I've heard both that it was him and it was Dave Fant who uh, I've heard it was Dwayne Jenkins. And I've also heard that later Dave Fant got turned into a vampire. But anyway, at some point the vampire was just taking over and, you know, just too powerful because, you know, the, the powers and abilities were right out of horror movies. And so Dave, Arneson, and I don't, you know, I don't know who started it, but there was this discussion. Okay, we need something to counteract the vampire. Well, there's always a vampire hunter. So, okay, well, what what do we want a vampire hunter to be able to do? And then, well, and maybe they should be able to like heal or you know, remove curse or something. And after a while, the concept had drifted. It wasn't so much a vampire hunter anymore is more of sort of a general holy person and that became i think it was first called the priest in blackmore and then gary changed it to cleric or it was let me refer it was changed to cleric at some point i don't know if gary did that or not so it was it was kind of a vague amorphous process from a couple scattered ideas that slowly coalesced more or less to fill a niche that the game needed filled. Mm. Or, as I put it in one place, we made up some shit we thought would be fun. <laughs> uh, and, and then, and so you're off to the University of Minnesota, right? Because you've talked about Dave right. Arneson's group a bit, right? So, um, and, and so the good news is it sounds like D&D did not consume too much of your studying time. You still get into... Uh, at the University of Minnesota, and did, did did you know did you know about Dave Arneson when you went to the University um, of Minnesota? I well, I'd gone to a several Gen Cons, so I may have met him, and I think I knew that he was running this game. Well, I did know that he was running this game called Blackmore, and in fact, in Chainmail, I think Davis mentioned as a member of the Castle and Crusade Society. So I knew Dave, but not well. You know, I knew a few of the Minneapolis gamers, but not well. And I did play in Blackmore for a while. Although after 
after a time, I also got a group. They, none of them lived on campus. And I was living on campus, and I got a group going on campus. So I sort of shifted my focus to that. Okay, so tell us about so, so you show up, and how do you get – because, I mean, look, this is really early times. I mean, you know, it's not like everyone's playing D&D. Did, did, did you – was there – were people playing D&D there, or did you basically bring it to the University of Minnesota? The University of Minnesota had a wargaming club called, at, there appears to have been more, at that time it was called the Conflict Simulation Association. Why? I don't know. But, so I showed up at a couple meetings and, you know, got to know a few people. And after three or four weeks, I said, Next week, I'm going to show you a new game. Hmm. And <laughs> let's see. Wait, what did you have to show them? I had my dungeon. Okay, yeah, because you didn't have any rules, right? We're still pre... Well, before I went to Minneapolis, I said to Gary, you know, I'd like to run this game at college, you know, and he photocopied about 20 pages of a rough draft of the rules for me. Wow. Is that what's known now as the the Mornard Fragments? Or? Yep. <laughs> because you found, tell you, yep. you recently discovered them in your attic or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, they've been in storage <laughs> all these years. And, and we, this is when we tend to ask where they live. Just, you know, not that we want to visit or and, and what hours you're at home or something like that. Not yeah. that we would go by and... Uh, well, it's a they, are, they are they are not here. You'd have to ask John Peterson about their location. <laughs> did you when you when you did you go looking? So so the the so called Mornar isn't it great to have something named after you? The Mornard fragments. Sorry. It's like Dead an artifact. Scrolls. Yeah. The yeah. Mornard fragments. That's right. right. I rolled a seventy-seven. Mornard fragments. So were you, did you go hunting for them, or were you like did your wife ask you to find some old photos, your wedding photos, and there they um, were. I, I've known John Peterson for several years. And as soon as I heard about playing at the world, like, well, and you have to understand that until not too long ago, we had a lot of stuff in storage. Mm. So I eventually, I, I, it was a deliberate search. It's like, you know, I got to see if I can find these things. Finding every box of gaming stuff I had, both at home and in the storage unit and just went through them all until finally it's like, okay, here it is. And that's a rare win-win because you can say, look, I'm cleaning out all that stuff. And little does, right? You're actually, yeah. you're, you're benefiting. Did you find anything else too? So other than these, these 20 pieces, I mean, I don't mean like, yeah, you found an old tennis racket. Um, anything else of note for gaming history that you found? Um... Hard to say because I don't know what isn't is um nothing pre-publication like that. Okay, so and I've got well, early, some early versions of character sheets. I don't know if that's interesting or not. I've got some old games from the mid seventies. Have no idea if they're you know. I've got a copy of Greg Stafford's original original Knights of the Round Table board game. Wow. Wow. I would I would say yes. I, I, I would say probably yes. So so you took these twenty pages. 
So Gary photocopied these 20 pages for you. Yeah. Did you have, and we ask this often of guests, because, you know, it's so, so, so people like us to hear Gary Gygax photocopies 20 pages of pre-publication of, of the original d and hands it to you to take. This to us is a big deal. Did you have a sense at the time it was a big deal or not at all? No, no, because everybody was writing their own miniatures war game rules. Um, you'd go to Gen Con and half, well, maybe not have a good number of the Wish I could figure out how to get my glasses to stop doing that. A good number of games would be the referee's own invention. You know, not is and you might get a piece of paper with your material on it, and the only copy of the rules is in the referee's binder. So and we were all working on games. Uh, Terry Kunz was working on a Robin Hood game. Um, so yeah, the, just, the floodgates you know, had that, opened. Yeah. The, and well, it just, and not, the, not so much the floodgates has opened as miniatures wargaming was a very do it yourself hobby. And we were all putzing around with stuff all the time. Uh, when Gary told me in late 73 that he and Don Kay had printed a thousand copies of D and D. I thought they were out of their ever-living minds. Uh, there's, you know, it's going to take you ten years to sell a thousand copies of that. Yeah, and you saw that when you came back, right? So when yep. when do you and when do you go to the University of Minnesota? The fall, I assume, of October what of 1973. Okay, and so we know that. So right, so what late say? Because 74 is when OD and D, right? The the the, yep. with the brown box. Yeah, comes out I believe it was printed in December or and when I came back it was either when I came back for Christmas vacation or spring break of 73 or 74 that I bought uh, oh there it is there it is and that's it, that's brown box right yeah yep yeah do not say white box say brown box Oh, yeah, no, we've heard about this, right? Because they ran out of the brown yeah. boxes, right? Yeah. And that's when they switched. And, yep. And I asked Ernie, I, people have said, why why a brown wood grain box? And I asked Ernie a few years ago, Tell, you know, is my hunch right that Patch Press had a bunch of those sitting around in the basement that somebody didn't want and they gave them to Gary for cheap? And he said, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, we had Ernie on. I think it was Ernie our last yeah. guest actually, and he yeah, talked yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so that's really valuable. That would it, boy, that's got to be four digits, don't, wouldn't you think? In terms of yeah. eBay. Well, <laughs> um, Paul Stormberg, at a rough guess, put it well into five digits because it's my copy. Yes. Yeah. If you signed it too, did he? Would that hurt it? Or how, I don't mean to say you know, just because I mean you know, I mean usually signatures help. I didn't know though if it's he could probably pristine. wave. He could say the uh, fragments were waved over it too. That he actually well, kind actually, of covered over it. Ha- it so. It's it has been signed by Dave Arneson. Oh, where can we see? We got to see. As it, was it touched? Who touched it? Did Gary? And honestly, I'm not making fun of me quite serious. I know no, it Gary, sounds weird. Gary, Gary picked this up off a pile in his basement and handed it to him oh. with his own hot little hand. I mean, this is first printing. Oh, my not gosh. Just first edition. Okay. And you've got Dave Arneson to sign it. So you must have known something if you're getting Dave Arneson to sign it. 
Well, this is oh. a fairly recent signature. Oh, oh look at that. I Super see. Cool. To the, what does that say? To the triple threat man. Okay, this is a good segue. Why are you okay. the triple threat man? Because I played in Greyhawk, I played in Blackmore, and I played in Tecamel, the world oh, okay. of Professor Barker's Empire of the Petal Throne. Yeah. Right. Because one of the people I played D&D with that autumn of 1973 at the university was Phil. Mm. And he was a lot of fun to play with. Um, and sometime late, sometime spring 74, Bill disappeared for about six weeks. And hang on just a sec. Sure. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to have to figure out when we can go up there and help. Well, we need his address all for official bid grog talk, right? right? Well, there's the, there's the letter we send thanking him for coming right. on, so we'll, we'll need his we'll send, address. We'll send a check. Right. <laughs> if you give us your address, we'll send you your royalty. Okay. Commemorative, uh, uh, thank you for attending, and just let us know the hours you're home, you and your wife are home or yeah, not yeah. home, yes. so that we don't bother. Oh, look at this, look at that. Empire of the Petal Throne, awesome. And wait, and when you say Phil, help me out here. I mean, Professor M.A.R. Barker, whose given name was Phil. Phil. Got it. So wait, so he actually played. So M.A.R. Barker, so you, you go to Minnesota. It sounds like you had to introduce them to D&D, right? So people didn't yep. know what D&D was. Right, they, they had no idea. But I sold it the same way I sold, Rob sold me. You're a bunch of guys exploring an old abandoned wizard's castle full of monsters and treasures and stuff. Mm. And, okay, I'll t the, tell you the first the story of the first adventure. Um, can I drop the F-bomb and get away with it? You can. We can always edit it out later, so it's okay. Mm -hmm. okay well, if, if it's used, if it's, it's, a, if it's a quote, I think then it's a, if it's a quote, it's a quote. It is, it is a quotation. It is a quotation. Yeah. So, you know, they go around, they have some success. Uh, a total of nine, like four or five players and some henchmen to make up a group of nine. And as they run into four kobolds and they get into a fight. And they fight and they, and they miss and the kobolds miss and they end the kobolds hit one of them, then the kobolds hit another one, then the first one gets hit again and one of the players die. And by this time I'm rolling, you know, all dice are rolled in the open. Four kobolds killed all nine of the players. <laughs> and one kobold took three points of damage. And I said, okay, how many hit points does he take? Four. So four kobolds wiped out the entire party the last one drops. There's about five seconds of dead silence. And one of the players, it was either Michael Wallen or El Musilevich, who we always called Moose. And, and in five seconds, one of them says, let's roll no characters and get those littlers. <laughs> and that's what they did. 
So this was the first time that you, you you introduced this game. Just what it's right. You you you're new yep. to the campus. You get you go to the wargaming group. You said, "Hey, I got this game. Um, yep. It's an extension of wargaming, but you get to play like you said, like Bob, Rob yeah. told you. They roll up these characters, and within how long between the time that you start the game to the Cobalt Massacre oh, happened? Probably probably a couple hours. Okay, so it wasn't the first so thing it, they did. So they it got wasn't to play their first encounter. Okay. No, and and you know anybody who's anybody who's ever wargamed." If you play war games, you are going to get handed your ass in a basket sometimes. It just happens. And I think that was the, the original correct- tagline for OD and D: have your head, <laughs> <laughs> head ass handed in a basket. That was the original thing they were going to put on there. So, yeah. well, well, we often joke about how so many people's first gaming experience with role playing into D and D was they play a character, they're killed in that first game, and they say, "I can't wait to play again." Well, yeah. If it's not the first thing that happens to you, yeah, that's true. Well, and I was um, a couple of years ago at Gary Con. I was talking to Heather Ashcraft from Pick Up and Go Games, and we were talking about you know the early days. And I said, okay, I started as a war game, you know, a miniatures war gamer. When you step up to the table, and we always played in teams, and you know, and we diced to see who was on which team. And we wouldn't even know necessarily which armies we're playing. It's like, okay, it's World War II. Who wants to be attackers? Who wants to be defenders? Or we'd roll dice and split up and say, okay, this time you're the Italians and, you know, you're the Americans or whatever. Oh, no, we're the Italians. Uh-oh. <laughs> hey, they, they, were, they were poorly supplied and they didn't... In the early stages of the Desert War, the Italians gave a very good account for themselves. But, you know, or it was Germans and Russian and, you know, the Germans are attacking this time or next time, you know, the Americans are whatever. But, you know, it's not like we always played the same thing. Gotcha. But, you know, like I said to Heather, when we stepped up to the table, it was in the full knowledge that somebody was going to lose. And... You want it to be the other buggers, but they have the same idea towards you. And the first time I ever went down into Greyhawk Dungeon, I had that same mindset. That, okay, you know, we're going on this great, glorious adventure, but we're not necessarily coming back. And the other, you know, you cannot win a battle without exposing your troops to danger. Mm-hmm. And if you expose your troops to danger, you're going to lose some. And that's one of the things that you have to learn as a war gamer. And so, you know, even if we won the dungeon adventure, you know, I may or may not be coming back with my shield or on it or in a sponge. Well, well, in D&D, we call those henchmen, I thought. Isn't it? Am I wrong? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you tried to use your henchmen as suicidal troops, <laughs> they would turn on you. I'm sure that's true. In fact, if you search on the internet for a story called The Magician's Ring, you will see the story of what happened when Lesnard, the magic user, didn't treat his henchmen well. It, it, 
did not go. <laughs> it went. It went bad. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there, and just to, to backtrack a bit to Gary's, you've recounted on the internet, I believe, a situation in which you played a solo game, right? It was Lesnard, I think it was Lesnard, went into Castle Greyhawk alone, right? Yes, because I had, I had gone down, you know, I'd hire a bunch of men-at-arms, go down, only I would come back. <clears throat> and it reached the point where I'm trying to hire some men-at-arms, and one of them, one of them said, point blank, no, you are, you keep getting everybody killed. There's no way I'm going with you. So with my mighty two hit points and, you know, my torch and my 10-foot pole, as a first-level magic user, I had discovered <clears throat> an entry into the third level. Oh, wow. And so I'm... I'm it's a fire exit. Yep. And... I'm going to, you know, by myself, I'm going to conquer Greyhawk Castle or at least maybe one or two monsters. And I spent probably 15 minutes trying to decide what my one spell was going to be. That's like, do I take sleep or do I take charm person? Mm. And I finally decided, okay, since it's the third level, the... It's more, you know, again, calculated risk. I'm more likely to run into a higher level single right. person. So I took charm person and in the proverbial dead end corridor. I'm for a wandering monster. And here comes this guy in armor who draws the sword and starts charging at me. And I'm like, charm person. <laughs> And fortunately, he failed a saving throw. He's like, "Hey, little buddy, how are you?" <laughs> and <laughs> that changed the whole that changed the whole adventure at that point. I assume he ended up yes. dying. Not you, the charm, the charm, the the, the no, knight was no. Oh, okay. No, he, he was. You're he was my. Man. Yeah, he was my best buddy, and he was also my muscle. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I, so I, why I did, I did very well in that adventure right. for myself. Yeah. Thank you. That changed the whole thing. And, so, and how are you gaming? So it's just you and Gary. Um, I think it was Gary and Rob, because they co-refereed for a while. So wait, okay. So you've got it's just you as a player, and you've got Gary and Rob. Wow. Co-DMing. Oh, how do you how do you book that single slot? Ask. Wow, that's that's great. <laughs> And, and it was, you know, basically Gary would say yes or Rob would say yes because they considered you a good enough player to not waste their time. Wow. I just, it's just a, such a but, different time, too, because, again, you're much younger than, uh, than Gary. I mean, it would be like, yeah. a, and you were part of this group. I mean, I can't even think of the analogy of one of my youngest sons who's 18. His friends would be like, hey, Nico's dad, do you want to run uh, a, a game for me and with your buddy who you, you hang out with? Oh, yeah, sure. Come on over. It's just that's that's really. Well, I time. mean, Gary was. All, but OK, Gary had was already running D&D several times a week. Right. So it's not. And I was part of his regular group, so it's not quite the same analogy, sure. but I was definitely a junior member. Yeah. And it was yeah, it was an awesome thing to be allowed to play solo. 
And some we had a prior oh, guest oh, oh, on. I can't I'm remember. sorry. There's, can we get some questions done? I apologize. Yes, we've been very, we've monopolized uh, our guest. So, yeah, we, have, we have a chat, Michael, and so people will be asking so questions. We got, so I think when we were talking about uh, Professor, was Phil a professor at the university at the same time when you were there? Yes. Yes, he was. Okay. Um, I don't remember when he got tenure, but he came in like 71 or 72. But so how do you get, because so that seems odd to me, because you're a student, and so you're fraternizing, you've, you've got a professor in your, in, in your gaming group? Well, every university group needed a faculty sponsor. Ah. <laughs> or a faculty, not sponsor, I don't know if they're called sponsor, but you needed a faculty. Right, or advisor, sponsor. faculty advisor. Yeah. Proctor yeah. Or whatever. And Bill was a wargamer. Bill was a miniatures wargamer. So he was the, so did you, okay, the group was already existing. You joined the group, you get them to play D&D. But, you know, many faculty advisors are there just to sign off on, you know, you need the budget for the, the Doritos and the Mountain Dew. But he was actually, it sounds like, participating in the activities. Yeah, he, 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 he was a war gamer. Nice. So did you say to him, did, did you approach him or did he say, hey, I heard some newfangled game? Um, I don't remember. Once I started running the game, it spread pretty quickly. And Phil was showing up for, you know, we met on Tuesday nights. And Phil was showing up probably two to three times out of the month. So he might have just, <laughs> just been there. Were you in any of his classes? Because that would be kind of, I would be odd no, to me. I, no. <laughs> I wasn't, but some, some of the others were. Oh, that's funny. Um, so when did you, oh, I'm sorry, James, yeah, you got other questions on the chat. Because I know we yeah, want to talk so, about Dave Arneson. At some, right, yeah. and I think when we get to that, you did mention about miniatures and, you know, because you guys came from a wargaming background and you mentioned that in Gary's D&D game, uh, he didn't use miniatures. Did that change in your mind or at least you know the different play style because again you're playing with miniatures was that a was that hard did the, did the players argue with gary more because you didn't have the tactile representation mm -hmm. i'm standing over here i wasn't there yeah um not for long because when gary was game mastering he was a bit of a tyrant and He'd also, you know, I was standing over there. He said, you never said you, you know, you came in through this door. You never said you moved over there. And there, there really, really wasn't a lot of argument. Once in a while, there'd be a little bit. But if, you know, I don't remember a lot of argument on it. And, you know, we had things fairly well worked out. We were a close order combat team. We didn't just, you didn't just wander into a room and spread out. And, you know, I have heard younger players refer somewhat contemptuously to fireball formation when you're in close order. But the number of things that throw area of, of effect attacks is a lot smaller than the number of things that attack in mobs. And there's, you know, Attacking a spread out group of player characters with something like 20 orcs in close order will teach them the value of close order in a big hurry. Or maybe not, actually. But. Yeah, because what happened? So, okay, so now, now I'm interested. Right? I'm intrigued, right? So what's, what's the lesson there? So if you've got 20 oh. orcs in formation. 
you get each player character with three or four orcs on them. Yeah. Um, fact, matter of fact, last I, last GaryCon I played in a game where that's exactly what happened. We got surrounded by something like 40 goblins, and I was bottom of the initiative list. And every player says, well, I'm going to run to at the, you know, run to the closest bunch of goblins and fight and get surrounded and cut down. And then the second player says, well, I'm going to run out to the closest bunch of goblins. After about the third or fourth time, don't you learn? And, you know, frankly, by the time my character got his initiative up and was killed by the goblins, I was frankly relieved. <laughs> <laughs> and just like thank god this is over and there was something like eight players and just once when i said how stupid could people be i wish they didn't say hold my beer and watch this mm. that's right <laughs> all right james anything else on the other uh, questions on the well, chat some comments and again they everyone's you know super appreciative my you know listening to you know all the, your perspective on 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 the old days and, and and gaming in general because again some of this stuff hasn't changed in almost 50 years 45 years the same concepts are happening in 2020 as they were in the early 70s um david thompson asked you know as far as the cleric was it ba you know he thought it was based on odo from the the bayou tapestry he didn't know if that was some of the uh history of it okay I didn't know that either. So David is our resident I, encyclopedic uh, person who knows a lot more than we do. So, All I know is that by the time I heard of the D&D cleric, I had already heard the trope of clerics can't use swords, even though in the Robin Hood movie, Friar Tuck uses a sword. But it was, I don't know where that originates from, but it was something I had heard long before I ever even met any of the gamers in Lake Geneva. Gotcha. It don't know where it came from. And uh, it's as far as kind of like the yeah, it, it was it was the concept that was there yeah. when when you showed up. Yeah, it was a, just like the idea that knights mm -hmm. had to be lifted onto their horses with cranes. I have no idea where that came from. It's. I yeah. So wrong that the light from right won't reach it for 10,000 years, but people still think that. The uh, other question was, because you mentioned the vampire and, and that was some of the, you know, the genesis of the, and that evolved to the cleric. Were there undead prior to the vampire? You know, that part of, uh, you know, whether it's Barrow, Whites or anything, you know, from Tolkien or whatever that I, was saying? Well, there's, there's Whites and Chainmail. Okay, there's Whites and Chainmail, yeah. But... What Dave did before then, I couldn't say. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Mike Carr, Greg Swenson, Marty Natso, Bob Meyer, Dave Wesley are still around. Yeah. They, you know, if you want to know the early years of Dave's game, those would be some of the folks to talk to. Yeah, we talked to Dave uh, last Christmas, right? Dave Wesley, right? Yep. Was it yep. Christmas time, roughly? He was great. He was awesome. The uh, yeah. and, and you know what's funny is so so on that episode we did it on site at the Blackmore Studios here as you may know Dave Arneson came down and taught in Orlando and and they named at Full Sail University and Full Sail was very kind and welcoming they gave us access right. to but 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 James had you you forgot a power 
Discord was, and our and our, right. our power was dying. And right as it was dying, wasn't it like right it is it was dying or right at the end he said something like and let me tell you why dnd was not based on chain mail and we didn't get to like, we what? didn't get that follow up uh, what we didn't because we, we gotta have him back on to, so i guess this this minneapolis lake geneva kind of rivalry perhaps so well, it, 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 go ahead Mark. that question drives me nuts and the reason it drives me nuts is nobody find what they mean by based on so until that question is answered, the entire discussion is nugatory. Uh, you know, Greg Swenson has said that the very first Blackmore, where a hero and a bunch of first-level scrubs went down to find a Balrog, Dave used the chainmail fantasy combat team. Does that mean it's based off chainmail or not? My particular take on it is, who gives a crap? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, yeah, because now you're just sort of you're, you're characterizing things. I mean, facts are facts, right? So if, if they he used it, they used it. Whether it's based on is a conclusion. I remember, like, I think we had Ernie on, and like something about well, you know, he was in the first because you know, Dave right brings Blackmore to Gary's house, right, shows him. Blackmore and and runs a game, and 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 then Gary starts. I think I said something about Ernie. You can we can say you were in the first dungeons and he had a look. He didn't say anything, but I think a look of surprise because. If you think about it, how do we know what what is the first Dungeons and Dragons game? You know, we, we I don't think we can even yes. identify. Can we? Um, a that Blackmore was the first game kicked off the thing that eventually became published as Dungeons and Dragons. Because, you know, yeah, I've been a prescriptivist. You know, define Dungeons and Dragons. Prove your work. You know, was Greyhawk Dungeons and Dragons before the rules were published? It, well, and we can go back forever. I mean, Dave Wesley was doing role-playing, right, in his, his miniature Wargaming, right? I mean, yeah. Bronstein. Yeah, well, there's, there's, and, uh, okay, about five, six years ago at Ericon, I was playing in a, a tactics battle, World War II. And I'm commanding a Russian tank, and I'm the last one in the column. And the T 3476A in 1941 did not have a radio. The commander of the platoon is up at the front with signal flags, giving orders to his column. Well, he comes under machine gun fire and buttons up. And he and the next, he and the second tank disappear around a corner. And so I'm like, Ooh. and the line between what was Russian tank commander doctrine in 1941 for a situation where you're out of communication with your platoon leader and what does my guy do that's a very thin and very porous line mm. and you know uh, it, it, we've all heard Godwin's law 
that you know eventually any internet discussion turns to Hitler. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I not heard that. <laughs> really? No. Okay. Well, Mornard's first corollary to Godwin's law is that eventually any discussion of gaming will turn into quibbling over definitions of words. And at that point, the discussion is effectively over. Uh, that, that makes sense. And, and, and maybe, can, can you tell, so when did you meet Arniston? So you've got the group, you know, you've got M.A.R. Barker is coming and playing. When did you, I mean, assume, because Dave Arneson isn't part of, of that, I mean, he's not part of that college. No. No, but I I met him at about the same time, and a bunch of uh, Rick Snyder and a couple other guys were living just off campus on the west bank of the campus, and I used to game with them too. And they knew Dave. So how did they know? So how yeah. did you actually meet well, Dave? This was, and eventually, he was just at one of the games that they were doing on Sunday afternoons. Okay. And then and- he 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 had. Then he started running Blackmore again, and I got invited to Blackmore. So you had so when you showed up and you started running, so you started running D and D obviously in your wargaming group before you then connected with Dave Arneson. About, uh, about the same time, okay. it was nineteen. It was a few years ago. I'm I can no longer swear to the exact yeah. schedule of events. But you're right. You're a new. You're a new student. You've connected. This is what you like to do. You're keeping yourself busy and. Anytime, like you said, you played a lot of times. It's not that big a deal, right? You, any game, you're you're up for it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. And how? So, can you tell us a little bit about how the games, the Blackmore games with Dave, differed from the Greyhawk games with Gary? Um. Well, the uh, in Blackmore there is no honor among thieves. Now I found out later, and I should have figured this. There was no res- there was no raised dead in Blackmore. Dead was dead. <laughs> so it's no wonder that when my character, you know, when a character got killed, nobody would bother bringing it back up because there's nothing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, go through his pockets and look for spare change. <laughs> um, and I remember once, you know, had an encounter. Dave puts down the battle map puts down a figure, <clears throat> puts the players down and says, okay, you have to write your orders and no talking to each other. Wow. And after about two turns, he said, who needs a confusion spell? Because, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and at least in the group, at least the times I played, the group was much less cohesive than I was used to in Greyhawk. Just as the player, you know, as the players, they were much, even much more self-centered. And in, in Greyhawk, we had, you know, we had drilled it to the point where it's like, okay, fighters form the front rank keep the enemy off the magic users, magic users get back to where you can see, you know, and we, we were pretty well drilled. Do you, do you have any idea why that was? So do you think it, it flowed from the different DMing styles or was it just the different personalities of the players, do you think? And I, I have no... 
I, I have nothing to go on. Right, right. Right. And so, and so, how long did you play in Blackmore, roughly? Because about like, a year. About okay, a year. So, okay. So why? Why only? So why did it come to an end? Because I think that those guys moved away. Basically, access. Hmm. It was no longer convenient. And I was playing at the university and you know, playing four or five <laughs> times a week at the university, both at the gaming club and in the dorm, and trying desperately to chase crime, and also occasionally going to class and maybe even doing some homework. Did, your, so, did, you, did you tell your parents how much you were gaming? Oh, hell no. <laughs> It could be worse, I guess. Like, what are you doing there in your first year? I got kicked out of college because of too much gaming. <laughs> and I'm not saying you got kicked out of college. But, uh, yeah, no, but my grade point average wasn't necessarily the best. It is unfortunate. You know, we've heard that many times that, you know, obviously, you know, there's so many play, you know, highly intelligent. They've read lots of books. They're very good. At, you got to be good at math, but yet they're not spending a lot of time studying and they're, and they're not doing very well. It. It was like nothing we'd ever done before. It was, and it was really addictive. Yeah, it is. It takes hours and hours. And so again, back to this, you know, we're always, we talk to folks like you who were there, you know, at the beginning or near the beginning or saw this. um, And you you have a chance to play with Dave Arneson, which again, now in hindsight, you know, regardless of the, you know, first D&D or whatever, it's, it is a historical game in that it's, it, it forms the, the hobby that millions of people like. Did, yes. you think, what, did you think, well, I should play because it's really good? Or it was like, oh, it's just another game, so what? I, don't, I, don't, I got my own. Well, we didn't have any idea we were making history, if that's right. what you're getting at. It well, just... the first part is, yeah, you wouldn't know that until probably later, uh, but... You know, he was interacting with Gary. Did it feel more legitimate, or your game was just as legitimate now that you've taken your fragments and do? Every game was just as legitimate. Okay. And, you know, that, that's one of the things that I do miss. At the, you know, well, I consult the book of Gygax and Arneson. Right. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the fruit uh, bets and the orangutans uh, and the uh, breakfast. We call okay. we call these the Holy Trinity. So we get it. That's yeah. uh, that's exactly right. Okay, volume three, last page, thirty six. We urge you to refrain from writing for rule interpretations or the like, unless you are absolutely at a loss. For everything herein is fantastic, and the best way is to decide how you would like it to be, and then make it just that way. On the other hand, we are not loath to answer your questions, but why have us do any more of your imagining for you? Well and I miss, I miss that attitude. And we, every game was different in some way, and that was part of the attraction. And Tim Kask, I remember, you, and they got letters. I, even you know, within the first six months, they were getting letters, and by mid-1975, it was a deluge. And I remember Rob and Gary and Ernie saying just like, I can't believe all these letters, and I can't believe some of the stuff they're asking. 
you know, Tim Cask's favorite. How hard, you know, how far does a dwarf move in armor? Well, if it's horse armor, he doesn't move at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's because, okay, it says in the rules, a dwarf moves six inches. Okay, is, you know, is that six inches in armor or six inches out of armor? Well, we yes. talked about it. Well, no, we talked about it. And, you know, one, one interpretation is, you know, six inches, since dwarves are usually in chain mail, six inches represents chain mail. So just like a human moves 12, 9, or 6, okay, a dwarf moves 9, 6, or 3. Another interpretation was that, no, that's 6 inches in ordinary clothing, you know, 4 inches in chain mail, 2 inches in plate armor. Another interpretation was a dwarf moves 6 inches, whether they're buck naked or they're carrying their entire house on their back, because dwarves just, they're not fast, but they're steady. And different... People took different interpretations, and that was okay. It didn't have to be everything exactly the same. And is that? And you you mentioned to us how you still play original D and D, right? So you know our podcast, of course, is about first edition, but we're very interested in the history of it. You never. It sounds like if you played first edition D and D, didn't take to it, or you simply never played it at all. Well. Okay, so you had OD&D, and then out came the Greyhawk supplement. And this was stuff, it was, it was optional. And, you know, everything was optional. And then there was Blackmore, Eldritch Wizardry, God's Demigown, there was these supplements, and then the Monster Manual. And I don't think the first Monster Manual said Advanced Dungeons & Dragons on it. Yeah, it depends so, which oh, version yeah. of it, yeah. Oh, yeah, the very interesting you know, first. The first ones probably then, didn't, oh, or they may have. It may and have. so then, in '77, it's like okay, more monsters is more monsters. And then the players' handbook AD and D, it's like, well, okay, there's some new spells here. Um, there's some you know new character classes. You know, Dungeon Master's Guide. Well, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff in there, but. You know, once again, what constitutes playing first edition AD and D? You know, uh, is there some minimum weight of the rules you have to include? You know, the fact that I use the spells from the new from the AD and D players manual available to my players. Am I playing AD and D or not? You know, most of us on the ground at the time didn't see it as such a strict dichotomy. Yeah. And, you know, with all due respect to Gary, when he wrote at some point, you know, if your game grifts too far, it's not, <clears throat> you know, it's not Dungeons and Dragons at all. And our reaction was like, okay. But you, but that to me is the difference between, I think, for Dan and I, who are younger, and particularly myself and probably younger people than me, is because we, we took that to heart. His lesson there, whether it was a business decision for tournaments, as we've heard, you know, so that people, they could have, you know, codify the tournament world. But that was really was taken to heart by, I think, a large, you know, the people who we interact with for the most part, they are very, if it's, because there was so much codified in the rules that there should be rules for everything. And that swing had you know permeated future editions, and they've kind of gone back and forth. And I think to your point, that's the delineation well, between the do-it-yourself 
here's an idea, run with it. And it's okay if you, if, if Mike's game is different than Dave's game, which is, and, and the spirit of the game, you have the collective history, you're going to be okay. This other one, nope. And, and that's where some of my sambas is. So it's, it's very interesting, your perspective, because well, I agree with you. Well, and part of it is, and again, I, uh, three, four years ago at Ericon, I talked to Jim Ward about this. Right about the time AD&D came out, TSR made a deliberate shift in their marketing strategy to shift from adult war gamers to the 11 to 17 demographic. Right. Because as, you know, any elementary marketing class will tell you, that demographic has a lot of disposable income. You know, they don't have a lot of absolute income, but you know what your 14-year-old kid gets for babysitting or mowing the lawn tends to pretty much be theirs to do with as they please. Mm-hmm. That's my so money. A, yeah, it was a good business move, but you can't write the same kind of game for adolescents that you do for adult wargamers. And... The, uh, well, I mean, one of the things is, okay, it's been a while since I've been a 13-year-old boy, but I remember quite a bit about it, including the fact that 13-year-old boys are feral little beasts. Right. So take a bunch of 13-year-old boys, put them together, take away adult supervision, give one of them the putative authority of being the dungeon master, and what happens? Hint, we've all read Lord of the Flies. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and you know, at, at some point, at, at some point in somewhere, Skip Williams wrote something about you know, rules to protect the players from the arbitrary whims of the referee. And when I first read that, I was absolutely disgusted. You know, if if there's that level of distrust and then I realized, no, this is, you know, this is written for 14 year old kids. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, because, you know, there is for a DM who, you know, so that very old school style. And I know that you've, you, I think, believe you're a fan of Matt Finch's primer for old school gaming, uh, which I think is wonderful. I mean, before I run a game, even though it's first edition, I love the spirit of what he's talking about, which, I, I realize is, 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 is more OD&D. But, you know, for the, for the DM who has to say, okay, the player says, okay, what's my chance of doing X? And you say 25%, and they hear groans. You know, there is comfort to having rules when you can say, hey, that's not me. It's Gary. Well, Look on page 97. Well, see, my answer is, so you ask me, you know, what's my chance? And I'll say, you think it's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. You know, to quote Dave Arneson, don't ask me what number you need. Roll the dice. I'll tell you what happens. Do you have in your head a number, or are you just looking at the general number? Like you have an idea, it's hard, and you, you want to see the number, and then you decide what happens based upon well, your sense of the number. Yeah. Well, I always have, you know, roll two six-siders. Good is high. And depending on the situation and depending on the precautions the player takes, you know, I'll interpret it. Uh, 
let's okay, let's let's say okay, I'm gonna jump off of my horse and jump onto the bad guy's horse behind him and knock him off. Okay. What, what level are you? I'm I'm also no fan, and I'll say this but I'm no fan of mixing a skill system and a level system. Mm-hmm. Now there are there are some great games that use skill systems. A skill system can be a fine thing to do, but you know, skill systems and level systems mix like peanut butter and nut washers. You know, or hex nuts, I mean. Yeah, just so I think that that is a mistake in later editions, I think. But so okay, well, what's my chance? Well, okay. Pretend for a moment that Gary didn't just put those titles on levels for fun. A fourth level fighter, you're a hero. Okay. How easy do you, you know, is this something you think a hero can do? Hmm. So, okay, I have you roll your two six-siders. Okay, you roll a 10. Okay, you do it. And... Okay, let's say, okay, I rolled snake eyes. Uh Uh-oh. Well, okay, you miss. Now, if you're a first-level character, okay, you might hit the ground hard enough that you actually injure or potentially even kill yourself. On a four, you'd fall, maybe take a little damage. On a five, okay, you you hit the ground and you're stunned for a round. If you're a hero, okay, you miss... You know, you tumble off the horse and you do a face plant and kind of go, ow. Okay, you're an, you know, you're a ninth level fighter. You're a lord. You jump and you roll a three. And okay, you miss, but you snag one hand on his stirrup leather. So you're bounding along beside the horse, galloping, trying to get up on it. While he's beating on the, your helmet with the pommel of the sword, going, go away, 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 go away. And I would... If I possibly can, I am more like, then this is just me, okay? Much like the Giants Bowling Alley, uh, Ram's Horn, the world of Ram's Horn is half Conan the Barbarian and half Daffy Duck cartoon. So if I can turn failure into something comical, I probably will. But that, you know, that's just my team. No, and it's absolutely, I think... What's interesting about there's, I'm sure there's, I think a lot of our audience would agree with that. I think there's a cadre of folks, when they hear your description is, and is Ramshorn your home campaign? Uh, my, yeah. yeah. Would, would cringe at it only because of the, they, they want certainty. It's almost opposite of the game that we're <laughs> playing. It's like, I want to know, that's why people, you know, Tell me if they like combat. A lot back to the wargaming versus not wargaming. The perception of non-wargamers of wargaming is, you know, it's all tactical, it's all figured out, it's all this kind of thing. The rules are completely prescribed, and you don't need an arbitrator, you don't need a referee, and um, there's certainty in it, and, and people want that. Would you describe for the non-wargamer? I know you're laughing, but that's people who don't have that experience. They they well, assume. And- there's, it's all codified. Well, and there's there's two kinds of miniatures war games. Um, starting with, well, I first heard of it through the English 
WRG, Wargamer Search Group, Ancients Rules, where, you know, two guys would show up with their army and they'd fight a battle. And, and it was very codified. But there, there, the other school of miniatures wargaming is a more direct descendant of the 19th century Kriegspiel, where the umpire or referee sets up the scenario and is also the rules arbiter. <clears throat> One of the reasons I like that better is that, okay, if it's, you know, two guys, two people show up with their army and fight a battle, everything's going to be pretty much a meeting engagement, you know, which is, you know, the two armies on the plane fight the battle. If you've got an umpire drawing up the scenario, it can be a lot different from that. And your victory conditions can be much different. And that gets, you know, I don't know if it still is anymore, probably. Dave Wesley would probably know, and so would Mike Reese. When I was in college, I was in ROTC for a while. And they taught us, you know, the principles of warfare from the staff college. Principle one was objective. What is your objective? What is it you're trying to accomplish? And with an umpire, the objectives don't have to be the same. You know, one guy could have the, you know, your objective is get off the other end of the table with at least half of your army intact. And the other guy's objective is delay the enemy for at least eight turns. And you know, yeah, <laughs> delay the enemy for at least eight turns does not necessarily mean die to the last man. Because if you die to the last man, who's going to fight tomorrow? And I've noticed, you know, objective people who haven't wargamed much really can get lost in terms of what do we, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. And it's been very frustrating running D and D games at GaryCon because you know I'm running. I'm running an old school game. It's like, you know, you are here to have adventures. Go have adventures. And if, if there's not somebody with a gold exclamation point over their head, a lot of players just seem to be lost. Yeah. And, you know, one of the examples I gave, okay, I've got a map of the town. And on one end, there's a body of water and there's piers, and there's warehouses. Okay, therefore, goods are being shipped by water. Therefore, there are pirates. You don't need to know anything about my world. You don't need to know anything about the game. All you need to know is, you know, a shrewd conjecture about human nature. Now, if goods are being, yeah, if goods are being transported... Somebody who doesn't own those goods is going to try to get their glommers on. Right. Or there's a thieves' guild that's operating in the warehouse or something to that effect. There's something going uh, something. on. Something. Mm-hmm. You know, if there aren't pirates somewhere around there, why not? Yeah. You know, you know there's, there's a thousand places you can go from there. 
So it sounds like you you use stuff from when the first edition books start coming out, and I assume you're still at the University of Minnesota, right? Because we mm-hmm. know seventy seven. So it sounds like you were you were grabbing stuff that you like, which many people did back in the day. It was more of a blend. So, but you've continued, right? You basically stuck with the, I guess the core of OD and D because it sounds like you like that rules light approach better, and then you just you would grab stuff from first edition AD and D that you liked. Yeah, that's that's. That's pretty accurate, and and it varied. I you know tried some things from like I think we used the armor or the weapon versus armor table once. <laughs> Everyone used and, it once. Yeah, and when I and I I stopped running totally for fifteen or twenty years, and then when I started up again a few years back, I made a conscious decision. Okay, I'm going to go all the way back, back to, you know, everybody uses six-siders for dice, for hit dice, and everybody uses six-siders for weapons. Mm. And I discovered something very interesting is that magic users, low-level magic users, became... less afraid to get into combat in in a more intelligent way. And the best example is first time I ran at Gary Khan, a guy playing a magic user named his name's Mike Simon. Again, he was a war gamer. So he uses his one spell. A little later on in the evening, they get into a combat in a fairly large area with a single creature and he says, okay, I'm going to go around behind it and I'm going to attack from the rear because that's what you do with light infantry. And yeah, he hit, you know, he didn't single-handedly kill it, but he helped. And that's, you know, that's the point at which I dubbed my Gary Khan game, Magic Users with Knives. You know, visit Ramshorn Castle, see exotic creatures and stab them. (laughs) <laughs> and then the, the next year, when Paul Stormberg ran D&D 30 Center Street, John Peterson was playing, and he was playing, a, I told him that story, he's playing a first-level magic user. He used his spell, they ran into an ogre. He was the only one, he stabbed the ogre to death with his knife, and he was the only one in the party who ever hit the ogre, and he killed it. And and those are the things you remember? Yeah. Right, and now you were actually. Oh, well, you didn't issue any experience points for that, though. I'm just, What's that? I was just kidding. Because in, in the first edition, uh, the dungeon master is supposed to evaluate the play, and if magic users get into combat, Gary specifically says in the book they should be penalized for that. So that's just interesting. Your take. Well, that's because Gary, Gary was mad at Ernie. He, he he didn't like magic users. That's right. Well, and there's. There's getting into combat and there's getting into combat. Mm-hmm. Sneaking around behind in a flanking maneuver is not the same as expecting to stand in frontline combat and duke it out. Right. Right. And, you know, Jim Ward wanted magic users to be able to wear magic armor and use magic weapons as well as throw spells. And. Where's 
Yeah, I was just, I'm very tired of hearing that it's no fun to play a low-level magic user or a first-level magic user because once you've thrown your spell, there's nothing to do. Mm -hmm. So I would not penalize anybody for finding something interesting and original to do with a first-level magic user once they've thrown their spell. And you know, this, this is, you know, this is, context is everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and you were, of course, you were thanked, right? Player's Handbook. So, you, you know, yep. uh, first edition. So there you are. And so did you know that you were going to be thanked? Or did you just buy this, open it up, and say, hey, that's me? Pretty much the latter. But, you know, for that matter, I contributed to the Greyhawk supplement, and my name's in there. Hmm. And, and, and so... Um, I assume you get in there because I've been told that, you know, Gary always wanted to know how people, he's always play testing things. He wanted to know how people solve things. He was always sort of working on it. So do you, and I think you could rightfully feel this way, that even though you're not, you know, and maybe you shouldn't even talk about what edition does one play because it's maybe a hybrid of a lot of things. But so, you know, do you feel in that way that your playtesting, all the games that you play with Gary helped ultimately contribute to some of the things that we see in the player's handbook? Probably. <laughs> and, and if you could please cite a page number and a rule, we'd appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, how long did you play that? <laughs> Oh, no, I was just joking. I've got a middle pit. Oh, yeah, my gosh. Oh, okay. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was being serious in the sense that, you know, you must have, and the question didn't come out very well, but, you know, you know, obviously some sort of spirit to the way Gary saw the game and the way he developed it well, obviously was built upon everything you guys were doing. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's hard to, it's really hard to say, especially since, you know, I went, to the university in 1973, I'd come back every few months, play once or twice. And then in 78, 79, the player's handbook, I mean, that's a lot of time for things to simmer in the back of Gary's head. So. And so could you talk a little bit about, so you also, because you also, you talked about playing with uh, M.A.R. Barker. So, I mean, assume you played in his, you played in uh, some Empire of the Petal Throne. As well, yeah. How so? How was that different? So you, so you you played with Gary, you played with Dave and Blackmore, and now you're you're playing in in what's going to turn out to be Empire of the Petal Throne. Yeah, yeah, that's. It was it was both different and the same, if that makes any sense at all. Blackmore or Tecumel looks different now from the way it did when I was 19 years old. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was a 19-year-old kid from a small farm pound in southern Wisconsin. I had never even heard the term pre-enlightenment mindset. Um, and it was so early in the history of the game that I don't think Phil was fully able to articulate what he was trying to do. And you know, looking back now, it's like the big difference in Tecamel was that Tecamel was about how you fit in society. And if you've ever read any of the Tecamel novels that he wrote, that's a major 
you know, that's the major motivation for all the characters, you know, to, <clears throat> to follow noble, what's called noble action in accordance with the bound, you know, in accordance with the ethos of your temple, your clan, your family. You know, it, it's all about being a, being a proper part of society. Mm. But I don't think Phil really realized that's what he was after for a number of years. And, you know, the initial Empire of the Petal Throne, if, if I had it all to do over again, it would have been a big help to the game if the books had come out first, the novels. Because you'll learn a lot about the society of Tecamel and just how they thought. And instead, you know, it's a reskinned D and D, and you can certainly play it that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But Phil was looking for something different, but didn't or initially didn't know how to express it. It's like in EPT, the published game, you start out as this barbarian from the southern continent who washes up on shore after a storm and you don't speak the language and you don't know anything and you got like five words of Soliani and you're confined to the foreigner's quarters of Jakala and you don't even dare leave the foreigner's quarters for fear that you will violate <clears throat> one of the intricate moral mores of Tecamel and be killed. And that's a crappy way to start a game. <laughs> And after about two years, Phil stopped doing that. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're a citizen. You're from this town. You belong to this clan. You know, this is your family. And he became a lot more free with saying, okay, your character would know this. So, but at the same time, it was absolutely glorious when Phil was on a roll it was some of the best gaming I've ever done. Like I remember, I, you know, the, my character won an Imperial award, the gold of glory. <clears throat> and I'm summoned to the throne room in, in Avanthar. And there's this enormous hall with this crystal lotus blossom surrounded by petals, which is where the petal throne comes from. And there's this, shadowy figure there and you know a small silver bell tinkles and the chamberlain next to me says his glorious imperial majesty Hirakane Tlakotani, perfumer of the nostrils of the gods tells you you know just, I mean it was straight out of a Bollywood movie and it was awesome it really was. And then one night we found one of the tubeway cars, which are the ancient transportation method. And we hopped in it and just spun the dial, you know, close our eyes, spun the destination dial and press the button and see what happened. <clears throat> so it was fantastically imaginative. And the, you know, Phil's biggest difficulty, I think, was 
translating what parts of his vision were important. Right. And, and he, you know, he was, a, he was a linguist. So, you know, you have the whole Soviani language thing, but much like, you know, the vast majority of people who read Lord of the Rings do not bother learning Elvish. <laughs> and, you know, the vast majority of people who like Star Trek don't learn Klingon. And, and it became too much of a thing in some quarters of Tecumel fandom to, you know, how many Soliani words do you know? Now, once again, who gives a crap? And I think that that hurt Tecumel. And the other thing, Tecumel arrived at a very, very strange time. It, you know, 1974 D&D comes out. 1976 is when Strategic Review, the TSR magazine, breaks into the Dragon and Little Wars. So by 1976, people already knew, okay, this is a different hobby. Tecumel was right in the middle of that, you know, Tecumel was announced, and Old Guard announced a whole figure line to go with Tecumel. They're all soldiers. You know, you can get Yan Koryani light infantry, you can get Yan Koryani slingers, you can get Yan Koryani mediums, you can get, you know, you can get all these legions, but there's no personality figures. I think there was one or two non-humans. You know, you know, Phil was still thinking in war game terms mm-hmm. when the whole thing started. You know, that was part of what was going to be, you know, the war between Soliano and Jan Kor. But it's really hard, you know, and it turns out that individuals don't really interact much in an empire-wide war with tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers involved. And, and and when did you stop gaming? So after, you know, you, you leave the University of Minnesota. Uh, when did you stop and, and did you remain in contact with Gary, Dave, or Phil after that? Um, I stopped in the early to mid-80s. I worked for several game companies, including Dave Arneson's Adventure Games. Hmm. Did you work on his role-playing game? Because he published a role-playing game. Was it Adventures in Fantasy or something? I'm trying to remember. I didn't work on that. I did not work on that. Okay. I was working on Adventure Games was doing Tecumel stuff. Okay. And I was working on that. And basically, you know, long story short, in 1985, I decided, fooey on this. If I'm going to work this hard, I want to actually make some money and went to grad school and got a business degree. And after five years, and 80 to 85, somewhere around 83 or so is when the D&D bubble finally popped. And the last few years, you know, Gamma meetings, you know, game Game Manufacturers Association, you know, it was all about you know, what can we do to reverse the decline in the gaming hobby? Oh, the bubble burst. So, you know, the last couple of years weren't a lot of fun. And that plus if you've you know, working retail at a game convention 
Yeah. <laughs> is the same as working retail anywhere else. <laughs> and that was, you know, from like 1985 to, nine, to 2001, 2002, I just dropped totally out of the hobby. I maintained contact with people because, yeah, they were my friends. In fact, I'm, I'm still in contact with four of the five players of my first ever D&D game at the university. Wow. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, 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 what, about, and what about Gary? Did you, so do you remember the last time you spoke with Gary? Um, we, he was really busy in the 80s. And then early 2000s, Rob Kunz was running the Pied Piper um, forum online. And I bumped into Gary there and corresponded for, you know, for quite a bit. And you I never made it to the Lake Geneva gaming conventions he was at, which I deeply regret. But, you know, such is life. But it was these, we, we did reestablish contact. And most of what I talked to him about was chain mail. <laughs> and, you know, because... In the introduction to Chainmail, you know, near the end it says, you know, this is just a game. It says maybe it will give somebody some interest in history. Well, I went ahead. I eventually ended up getting a bachelor's degree in medieval history. <laughs> and I can trace that decision to playing Chainmail. So I said to Gary, curse you, Gygax. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course... A bachelor's degree in medieval history makes you perfectly suited for any number of entry-level minimum wage positions in either the food service or housekeeping industry. <laughs> you were probably, so in your business school, when you go to grad school and get a business degree, I assume you're the only one there with a bachelor's in, in medieval history? We didn't talk about it much, actually. <laughs> uh, when one of my classmates had a bachelor's degree in theology. Okay. So yeah. the... Their master's, you know, it's like, why did I get a master's? Because I figured out it, it would have taken me two and a half years to get a bachelor's in business or two years to get a master's in business. Because uh, yeah. the, the MBA program was specifically designed for non-business majors. And and what about and what about Dave and and do you get and and I, and I'd like to ask do you get the sense that Dave felt you know and I don't want to bring I mean you know, this has been debated and talked about a lot um, so we don't need to go into a lot but do, you know did Dave feel that he had been sort of neglected a bit the kind of lost you know, so many of us like James and myself we only knew Gary Gygax because we started playing in the eighties and his name was on the books only later when we've come back to the game have we do we have an appreciation for Dave Arneson's role? Okay. Okay. I'm gonna say three things about that. Number one, yes, especially in the eighties and into the yeah, you know, I don't know for how long, but yes, Dave felt very much like he had been treated badly. Number two, I don't remember which, but a few years before Gary died, he and Dave appeared together at Gen Con. So the two of them decided that they were reconciled to one another and nobody else gets a vote. And three, because I, I actually gave a desk 
deposition to this effect for the lawsuit, Dungeons and Dragons, by which, defining my terms, the three little brown books, you know, the three little tan books in the wood grain brown rocks, you know, the game Dungeons and Dragons as we received it, would not exist if not for both Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. So what else may have happened, who knows? But you know, we would not have D&D without both of them. And I think, I think that's what, for people like James and myself, that's what we now realize. And so I, I think that one of the great things about this old school revival is it's brought out this greater appreciation for, for who Dave Arneson was, his role. Uh, and it's, it's a shame, you know, I, I don't know when you date the old school revival starting. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know, probably after Dave passed would be my guess. I mean, I, my sense is it, it would have been great if Dave could have been around now. Like, you know, James and I, we live in Orlando. We didn't start playing again until a few years ago. So by the time we discovered who Dave Arneson was, yeah. you know, we could have, if we had known about this before, I'm sure we could have gone over to Full Sail University, met Dave Arneson. We probably played a game with it. It would have been such a yeah. thrill. But unfortunately for so many of us, we just we came back into it later. That, yeah, and that's that's life. That's true. And you know, it's, you know, there's. You know, I've been asked if I'm part of the old school renaissance or the old school revival. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm still playing this silly ass game the way I always did. <laughs> you know? And what, what I'm trying to get going is the what I call the free Kriegspiel renaissance. And the abbreviation is FKR. And yeah, you pronounce it just the way you think you'd pronounce it. And... <laughs> <laughs> Dawn breaks on Marblehead. <laughs> and what Free Kriegspiel is all about, it came out of the 18th and 19th century military training Kriegspiel. As they got more and more rules, they eventually reached the point where, well, one of them was a general named Verdi de Vunois, German general with the French name, but he came up with what he called free Kriegspiel. And the primary principle of free Kriegspiel is that the umpire has ultimate authority and written text has no authority. The umpire may make use of written text for their convenience, but the umpire is the ultimate authority. And... You know, and we do things like that in miniatures wargaming all the time. It's like, okay, your unit of light infantry just got slammed into by 20 heavy horse on the flank. I'm not even going to bother checking the morale table. You know, because those light infantry are going to book. I don't even have to look it up. Um, Mike, you know, when running tractics, in tractics, a low roll is good. So, okay, you're firing. Okay, you rolled a three. Not even going to check the charts. Or if you do hit, okay, your Panther tank just nailed a Sherman at 500 yards. The Sherman is toast. But part of what makes that work and part of what made that work in the military Kriegspiel was the fact that the umpire was an experienced officer. 
and the players were junior officers, but it meant they had a common reference. I mean, they all knew how many men were in a regiment. You know, they all knew what the range was of a light camp. So there was a level of trust there. And I, what I'm trying to figure out is how to reestablish that level of trust in role-playing gaming. You know, the world of Ramshorn is my world, and I'm the only one who gets to say how it works. But I know how it works. And it lets you skip a lot of the rules. You know, my, one of my examples, okay, the original D&D had no um, coup de gras rule. Gary didn't think it was necessary because, you know, if somebody's helpless and tied up and pinned down and you hit them in the head with a two-handed axe, they're dead. You know, you know, I don't care who they are or what they are. I'll, you know, I'll have you roll dice because there's, you know, people have missed even the easiest strokes. But... Yeah, you connect good and solid with a two-handed axe right here, it's over. And, you know, Gary didn't think it was necessary to explain that. And so I'd like, I'd like us to be able, the hobby as a whole, to be able to get back to that point where Player, you know, players don't. I'd like to move off of Lord of the Flies. I want to leave the island. You know, so we don't have to have rules to protect the players from the whims of the referee. Because mm -hmm. when we went into Greyhawk Dungeon, Gary wasn't the adversary. Gary had, you know, he was the referee. He had set up the scenario. You know, earlier on, I was talking about the referee setting up a war game scenario. Okay, well, Gary has set up this scenario. And, okay, you go down in the dungeon and there's a critter, you know, there's a monster there. Well, just like in Dungeons of Pashakata, the monster, you know, you dealt out the card and there's the monster. Well, Instead of dealing out the card, Gary wrote down the monster, but it's the same principle. You know, the monster's there. What happens when you encounter it is what happens. The referee is simply describing the action. The referee's not your opponent. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if a first level character wanders into a nest of six trolls, that does not mean that the trolls are not going to eat him. Just because if a first level character wanders into a nest of trolls, that's what happens. And I'm, and I've been working on this for a couple of years to just try to reestablish that basic level of trust so that not everything has to be codified. You know, I, when I was back in practice, I could run an entire evening's adventure with nothing but the notebook containing the dungeon, the hit charts and the saving throw table. And, you know, if you don't remember, if I don't remember a rule, I'll wing it. And, you know, people say, well, you know, what if it's not consistent? 
It's like, okay, the next time this situation comes up, if one of my players can remember what I did three months ago, good on them. But I'm willing to bet a nickel. They won't remember either. Yeah. I, I think, was it uh, James, was it Ed Greenwood that we had on who said he doesn't play any edition? Somebody, right? right? He doesn't play any edition. They just, they just play. He, he just plays. plays. They just play. Um, and, and I think that there's a gravitas that some people can have. And, and the problem is it's for all... This game is for all people, and as it's broadened out, you know, the later editions, there's obviously been not just a renaissance in old school, but just in role-playing. We've kind of, uh, you know, video games, when we grew up, a lot of people left because they went to video games, because it had the appeal of the things that is anathema to what you're talking about, which is people wanted the prescribed everything, you know, I I hit the orc, the orc hits, and everything's all pre-described, and if it's not codified, so be it. Well, and... One of the big appeals to video games and computer games is convenience. Right. You you can pop in the disc or you can, you know, log into your MMO any time of the day or night. And you don't need anybody else around. And in most of them, they're very carefully designed that in 10 or 15 minutes of play, you can accomplish at least a little bit. And they're really a different experience. Right. And I, and some of them have been fun. I The first computer game I ever played was Knights of the Old Republic. Oh, yeah. Wow. And... That's pre- pretty recent, relatively. Yeah. But in some ways, it was absolutely awesome. But I also remember the first time I played it through, the first planet I visited was, I don't know how well you remember the game, but the first planet I visited was Tatooine, where at the end you're supposed to fight a crate dragon, and all that happens is you watch an NPC kill the dragon. Oh, no, I don't remember that much, yeah. And, you know, the only, you know, it's like... Yeah, yeah. I, I want to do that. Right. I want yeah, to I want to combat that. Cuz that I mean that's one of the first lessons you learn as a referee very early on is no your player character does not want to tag along after a higher level NPC even though they will get to see some cool stuff on the way. You know, I made that mistake everybody makes that mistake, but I made that mistake exactly once. And you know, all these years later you know, they're making it again in this video game. Well, and the other thing is, uh, which character? Um, the mercenary. At some, you know, pardon? Yeah. I was going to say the assassin droid, which is our the favorite in that. Oh, H-K-O-P-P-3, you know, he's, a, he's so. hysterical. Right. Yes, beatbag. I mean, master. <laughs> yeah, right. Gary would have laughed until he wet his pants over that one. <laughs> but... There's this mercenary, and early on in the dialogue chain, you, you ask him a question, and he gives a very brief answer and says, we will never speak of this again. And I'm like, okay. Well, it turns out you are supposed to speak to him again. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you know, in, in Greyhawk, if Conan said, never speak to me again, he meant, never speak to me again. <laughs> yeah. So that, that I found frustrating. But yeah. on the and other hand, there, uh, there are parts of there are parts of that game that are bloody brilliant. 
Well, and I think that's, you know, it, we try to be all things, all people, but I think what you're trying to talk about, and, and it is that almost eternal challenge of you have different people at different levels of perspectives, the game is growing, um, you know, we, uh, there's some comments about, you know, crafting a story, you know, the, the original games is the way you've described it. You know, the scenario is set up, you kind of delve in, and what happens, happens. The, the yes. game master or the player has really no idea yes. how you're going to survive, who's going to survive. <laughs> Later, other games started the railroad kind of thing where, you know, you're kind of, you're like, it's a small world. You're kind of being <laughs> transported around from scene to scene. And whether it's you're following an NPC, you, you're, you're going to go through the story. And yeah. some people love that. They think that's Dungeons and Dragons, and that's not our version of that. So what's yeah. your thoughts okay. when you see crafting a story as Jonathan okay. put on there? Personal opinion, just that's one random old goober on the internet. And, and for people listening on the podcast, Michael is self-flatulating himself. I barked in your general direction, you silly English pig dog. Now go away or I will punt you a second time. Um, but again, that's just opinion. If I never, ever, ever play another fantasy game where it's save the world, it will be several eternities too soon. You know, story is what happens. And sometimes the story is, once upon a time, there were some people who thought they were heroes and they were wrong and they died. At which point, let's roll up new characters and get those little That's right, that's book two. Now, and to be fair, to be fair, that's a lot easier to do when it takes five minutes to roll up a character. Right. And genre matters. A um, friend of mine ran a champions campaign for something like 15 years, the superhero role playing in the hero system, which it's very flexible, but very complicated. It takes between an hour and three hours to make a character. Mm. So, you know, that kind of mortality rate in that sort of game is untenable. But especially if you're playing, you know, classical 60s and 70s comic book superhero, you can get away with that. Failure doesn't necessarily mean death. And in context, I have no problem with mission-based games. You know, one of the best examples I can think of is, okay, Star Trek. You're playing a Star Trek game. Of course, you know, you are the captain of the starship Invincible. You have been ordered to go to Starbase 9 to rendezvous with the Yorktown to take the vaccine for Rigelian fever to Gamma Hydra 9. You can fail the mission without anybody dying. But you can still fail. And yeah, that's that's more of a developing the story. But that's what you know, that's what the source material is. And I, I saw in the, your interview with Ernie, you touched on this at least a little bit, but for us, fantasy did not begin and end with Lord of the Rings. Right. You know, Gary had this whole rack of fantasy books. You know, I 
I don't remember if I discovered Conan before or after I discovered Lord of the Rings, but I'm pretty sure I discovered Doc Savage before I discovered Lord of the Rings. Plus, you know, we had all read Greek and Roman mythology. You know, I read, I was like 12 or 13 when I read a condensed version of Beowulf. Um, you know, the story of Hercules. So, you know, the notion of you're necessarily a gang of band of heroes indulging in a world saving quest wasn't the root of all our fantasy. You know, yeah. Hercules has assigned his 12 labors because in a drunken rage, he killed his wife and children. Right. You know, and that matters too. That, that affects how we all saw fantasy. You know, the first ever Fafford and the Grey Mauser story, it was retitled later, but the original title was Adventure. And, you know, it starts out, they write, they find some farmhouse out in the wilderness, and as they ride up to it, you know, they're going to ask for lodging for the night, and off in the distance they see a tower. And they're, you know, staying at the farmhouse for the night, and they ask the farmer, you know, what's with the tower? And he's like, that's the horrible, evil tower of awful, evil horribleness, and no one has ever, you know, no one who has gone there has ever returned. And our two heroes say, first thing in the morning, right? And they do, because... They want to see what's in the tower. Now, when they get there, they're not stupid about it. But, you know, and, you know, Fafford and the Grey Mauser, Conan, several others started out as series of short stories. And a series of short stories will give you a totally different sort of narrative from one epic book. And, and don't get me wrong, I love Lord of the Rings. I read it approximately once a year. Um, I Go ahead, Dad. I sort of, what's that? Oh, no, James is goading me. He, apparently, this is what I'm supposed to ask you, your opinion of Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is my favorite character. <laughs> yes. And the reason, he, part of the reason he's my favorite character is that so many people obviously don't understand him. Thank you. Please, could you explain and, to, I don't know, James? Okay. There's, there's an old English folklore figure, the Green Man. Oh, yes. Who is, this, who is the guardian spirit of the forest. Bombadil is the Green Man. And the other thing Bombadil does and this you know, this happens several times in Tolkien, in Lord of the Rings. Little, never, never much, but there are these little bits where somebody says something. Well, like okay, when they're trying to go through Caradras Pass, and you know they hear voices on the wind, and Gandalf says something on the order of, "There are evil things in Middle Earth." older than Sauron who have nothing to do with him. And at other point, I think talking about the Ents, it's like, you know, there are forces for good older than the Ents. There are things going on in Middle-earth that have nothing to do with Sauron and the Elves. And 
it's you know you got look you it's just little drops here and there but that's one of the and bombadilla is one of them and it's just those little things that are never explained are part of what makes the book so great because most of our world isn't explained james how you well, feeling I feel great because I this these are the two Lord of the Rings books I have, which is the second and the third book. I don't even possess the first book, so uh-huh. that's uh, and, and um, the the first Fellowship of the Ring is my favorite. Thank you. Yes, yes. So there, there you go. There are times I will frequently read just Volume One. That's what I do. I just read Volume One and I stopped. I tried to read Two Towers. I put it down. Just read Volume as One. As a matter of fact, at, at least once or twice I've gotten basically as far as Bree and stopped at Bree. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Yes. So, so your idea of the story is a bunch of idyllic, uh, <laughs> never ugly. dying people go and take a long stroll, and then that's the end of the book. Okay. Yeah. He should he should get the middle finger. I got it. He should get it too. I'm the bombadil <laughs> fan, and I'm the one who got the middle finger. Come on. <laughs> There's no justice in this world. You're an arbitrary DM. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> no, James is actually. See, we, we should we should pity him. You're right. That's right. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're right. I do feel sorry for him. I, I well, I read The Hobbit last year again. I'm <laughs> I, and it was it was coincidence. I went to Goodwill. I was planning on buying the books, and they only had these two books. So I have to buy the Fellowship. But it, I just thought it was ironic that. Okay. Yeah. So that well, tells you the person who liked the book kept the fellowship and he dumped the other that was, two. Those so are my go. two. That's right. Yeah. Well, and some of, I don't remember if it was Tolkien or C.S. Lewis who said, you know, people complain about escapist literature. And said the only people who complain about escapism are jailers. And yeah, I will freely admit um. Okay, I suffer from chronic anxiety disorder. Mm. Sometimes reading about the Shire and the Hobbits taking a stroll is a very soothing, very comforting thing. Yeah. And that's um, one of my favorite authors. Okay. One of, if not the greatest fantasy books ever written is The Curse of Chalion, by Lois McMaster Bujold. And absolutely everyone should read that. Writing it down. Another one of her books is a, and she calls it this herself, a science fiction Regency romance. Hmm. And it's a science fiction world, but basically it's an old fashioned Regency romance. The title of the book is Captain Vorpatro's Alliance. And again, that, I just if reading that book is like a cup of hot cocoa for my soul. And you know, sometimes I need that. Now sometimes I will read all, you know, I, it's not like I never read all three, you know, all three volumes. You don't you know, know the end. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes and, and I mean I once I start, I more often do. I mean it's only occasionally that I stop in the first volume. But you know, sometimes I just, I want that comfort. Well, we'll and see. Speaking well, of right. miniatures, again, personal opinion, one reason I prefer gaming without miniatures 
the best illustration I can give is Tolkien's description of the Balrog in volume one is more terrifying than any painting, drawing, miniature, movie projection, anything I have ever seen. And I have been universally disappointed in every visual depiction because he describes it as manlike, but power and shadow swirled around it. It didn't look like a bipedal dragon that roared. Right. Or like, uh, like a bull in go-go boots with wings in the Ralph Bakshi movie. <laughs> Although back back when Ralph Partha started doing fantasy miniatures, they did a Balrog, and Tom Meyer, the sculptor, I've been told, had just acquired a girlfriend. His Balrog was male. Oh yes, my word indeed, male. As in not wearing any clothes. Right as in down past his knees. <laughs> and one friend of mine who's doing, and, and all his orcs, all his orcs, they were wearing greaves and they were wearing breastplates, but they were wearing nothing in between. And they've got all their little orc weenies hanging out. That's awesome. And so a friend of mine who's an excellent painter and a twisted individual, He's doing a fantasy army, so he's got Balrogs, and he's got Orcs, and somebody was making decals for miniature war game for figures for Celtic shields. So there's, there's these elaborate knotwork designs. So he took a decal and put the elaborate knotwork design on the Balrog's conquer. And then put the matching sh design on the shield of each orc assigned to that balance. <laughs> so like, oh yeah, we're here. That's how we can tell. <laughs> That's right. They're, they're they're the swing low crew. The swing low gang. That's yeah. great. The free yeah, the free ball like, the free ball gang. Yeah, it's great. That's awesome. And just like, all righty then. All right, James. Do you have anything this, else from the chat? No, I, 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 well, let's see, um, we did, let's see, some of the folks, again, they appreciated one of our, our, our Safer Fantasy Crafting was talking about the free Creech Spiel, like, an hour before you mentioned it again, so he was ecstatic that uh, you mentioned it, and, and what you're trying to uh, emulate, and I think, you get it, it's a trust issue, it's also, a, 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 in my opinion, a knowledge issue, people don't have the pet. You know, even though I started in, let's say, 1981, I didn't go to a hobby store to get my D&D books. It was at a bookstore. So I didn't have the culture of it. It really was, there was no game before. It was probably, I mean, I, there was some reference to it in one of the books, but OD&D didn't exist because you, you couldn't find it. You, if, you, if it wasn't at B. Dalton's or Walden Books, it, yeah. wasn't, it, didn't, it didn't exist for a lot of people if they didn't go to a hobby store. And, and the, I think the challenge is now you have 40 years of history that people don't have. And it's, again, it's almost revelatory what you're saying, but it comes back to there's something about the codifying of the rules 
um, and that everyone needs to understand them, that changes the game and, radically. And what, one thing I noticed, and this I, this I really miss, for the first, okay, I played in Gary's Greyhawk dungeon. And within about a week, I had swiped a piece of graph paper from math class and had drawn my first dungeon level. And started playing with a couple of friends in lunch hour at school. And they swiped some graph paper and they drew their own dungeon levels. And I went to the University of Minnesota and ran. And within about three months after I started running there, at least three other players had their own worlds and their own dungeons. And people in the local science fiction society would see a game, I mean, would see a game or play in a game, and they'd start running on their own with nothing but a pair of six-sided dice and just talking. You know, didn't even have rules, just you'd say what you wanted to do and you roll the dice and the higher you roll, the better it goes for you. And in those first five years, that's why the game exploded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody was playing, even if they'd never seen the rules, because all you needed was, you know, a pair of dice and some imagination. And if you didn't understand, you talked about it. Mm. And I think that's probably the biggest, this, and this I'm going to go where it's not just a matter of taste. The biggest objective disadvantage, I think, to the more codified rule set is that it started a path that has led to, by now, so many people think that refereeing is this incredibly arduous, difficult task that only a few savants can master, because the first thing you have to do is memorize humpty bazillion pages of rules. Right. And that's sad because, you know, this game got started because we made up so we thought it would be fun. Right, exactly. You know, it just, hey, I've thought up this world. Why don't you guys come and explore it? And I miss that innocence. I miss that energy. And it... I, I miss the silliness. Yeah. Um, you know, Rob Kuntz, um, on his Facebook page for his publishing company, you know, he, one of the, you put a little thing out there, you know, favorite sayings of various players in Greyhawk. And, you, you know, bomb, you know, Jim Ward's Bombadil and Tensor and then, you know, Gronin, Crom and Mitra. Then a little further, you know, some more, and then down, you know, groaning, mommy, when things weren't going so well. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I wrote back around and said, I'd forgotten about that, but yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> and, you know, or his magic user, Otto, who would, you know, Gary's doing the voice, they're riding along, and Otto is my name, and magic is my game. <laughs> and, yeah. So, you know, Gary gives him the magic user Otto and a sage named Herb. And Rob gives Gary, you know, 
Sigby Rigbyson and Bigby Digbyson. And as I said, I was interviewed for the uh, for a documentary on D and D. You know, when did sitting around a table with friends, drinking beer, and pretending to be an elf become such serious business? Mm-hmm. I mean, so many gamers seem to have all the sense of humor of an impacted wisdom tooth. And no, I mean. You know, I get it. It can't be nothing but Monday, you know, it can't be nothing but four hours of Monty Python references and fart jokes. You know, I get that. But it can't, James. This has been a rough episode oh. for James. Everything he holds dear crumbling. <laughs> well, I mean, it's don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with a good fart joke. I, my inner 13-year-old child is very close to the surface. But, my you know, whole like, game. Like, that's my whole thing, yeah. That, that's uh, his whole spiel. Yeah, yeah but you know, half, half Daffy Duck cartoon, half Conan the Barbarian. You know, there, there's got to be some bloodshed and mayhem in there. But it just, yeah, it just, it's become so humorless and so joyless. Sure. And, and I do, you know, I, convenience is a big thing. I, you know, I'm I'm with a group here in town, and the guy who's refereeing, you know, they're playing Pathfinder, and he said, you know, I have a wife, a family, you know, a career I'm trying to build. I don't have a lot of spare time. You know, we can either play a Pathfinder adventure path, or we don't play at all. Fair enough. So I mean, I'm glad that there's a way to participate, but. It just doesn't have the depth. Well, I, I kind of, not kind of, I very much miss the ability to, wait a minute, this looks more interesting. Let's go there. Well, that's, and that, that's what we, I think that's the style that is, we still like that. Um, it's very, well, sandbox is the, is the idea of let the players dictate where they go and, and that's why I don't prep as much as I used to, because it became a, a waste of time. And, um, yeah, you could reuse that material later, but, uh, you know, now it's wherever... In fact, the, the game where I'm running weekly is you go to the bar, you get rumors, you get these quests, you decide where you're going to go. Tell me, tell me where you want to go and when you want to play, and I'll get ready for it. And, yes... And, it, you know, it says right in OD&D, you, know, you will have to go, you know, check around at the inns and taverns for rumors. And it tells you how much you have to bribe the bartender to get rumors. And people get paralyzed by that. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, and, you know, define, you know, I do a lot of prep, but it's very high level prep. You know, I know the right. world. Right, know exactly. the world, you know, the, know the major NPCs and their major agendas, and then just, you know, see what happens when you let the players loose. You know, again, you know, going back to, you know, there's a river and there's piers, therefore there's pirates. Okay, what do the players want to do about that? You know, do you want to join the pirates? Do you want to fight the pirates? You know, do you, it's up to you. 
Right, and that's and that's where a lot of DMs, especially if they come from the fifth edition, and my son plays it, I'm glad there's a fifth edition because there needs to be a ninth edition. Because if there's not a ninth edition, as I've said many times, there won't be D&D at some point. There's got to be people's game. I just hope, like you, it's come back a little bit and it continues to come back to that spirit of, and again, Wizards of the Coast, they got to sell products. You know, they want to sell a book like this and say, okay, you start on page one, basically, and you run your campaign through page whatever this is, yeah. 250 pages, and here you go. And here's, here's an epic story and awesome. It, it yeah. just needs to have both. If you want yeah. Lord of the Rings, great. If you want to be a bunch of looters and thieves, you should be able to do that too. The game should handle both. Well, and again, going back to we weren't one gang of people tied at the hip. Yeah. You could have you can have both in the same world. Right. You can have somebody who's only in it for the money. You can have somebody who's trying to gather money because they're a no, you know, they're from a noble family that's been disgraced and lost their fortune, and somebody else is trying to get money to rebuild a temple. Uh, it just it, it's it's not only one thing to do in the game, right. and. I, you know, I don't know if you want to jump back to an earlier topic or not. I'm not. I don't have a clock, so I have no idea. If, well, you know, we're, we're, we're we're going to wrap it up just because we appreciate your time and and uh, you know I think we'd love to have you on again anytime you're you're willing. Be, I, but I, if you have time, there is one more brief thing I'd like to say. Sure, of course, of course. You know, you're talking about Dave Wesley and role playing in wargaming, but there are two things that happened in Dave Arneson's Blackmore that I think mark mark when fantasy when fantasy role playing became when when Blackmore became more than a war game. Number one was the day Pete Gaylord said, I want to play a wizard, and Dave said, okay, what do wizards do? And they sat down and negotiated it. Mm. And that openness was something new. And the other new thing is, okay, the scenario was the you know, the Egg of Coot was attacking Blackmore and he was expecting that the players would fight against the Egg of Coot. Well, the players went and did other things totally. The Egg of Coot took over and, okay, theoretically the game is now over because the good guys lost. But instead... Dave said, okay, I'm just going to keep running this game and see what happens. And the big, and there was no fixed agenda. There was no predefined condition of this is how you win. Each player was able to set their own victory conditions, which as Rob Kuntz said in his book, Dave Arneson's New Genie, True Genius, that may be truly unique in the history of gaming. I don't know of any other game where a player has the complete ability to decide these are my victory conditions. Yeah. And you know, Terry Pratchett said in one of his essays that Discworld started as a parody of D&D. But 
you know, because, you know, there's these million people, cities, and how do they work? Well, Greyhawk was a medium-sized medieval town of 5,000. Blackmore was a village of 500. You know, they weren't huge cities, and after the Egg of Coot took over and the elves moved in, they put turnstiles in the dungeon entrance and started charging player characters to go down in the dungeon. And then the merchants in town set up booths and tents outside the dungeon entrance to tell to sell the players ten foot poles and right. rope and spikes <laughs> exactly. and all and iron rations. And if Dave had thought of it, there would have been a little guy selling sausage in a bun. So if Discworld isn't a parody of D and D. It's a rediscovery of what D&D originally looked like. Because, yes, the giant bowling ball would kill you, but Dave and Gary both had tongue firmly in cheek the entire time. And mm. if you could, and this is maybe a tough question to answer, but so you knew Gary, you knew Dave, you knew Phil. If you could... You could describe each one of them in just like maybe a couple adjectives. What would you say about the three of them? In terms of what? Anything Any, you want. Yeah. First, a uh, couple of adjectives. You think of Gary. I think of Gary as a very imaginative, hardworking man. I mean, none of them are perfect. Everybody's human. Um. Very imaginative, very humorous. Now, like I said, he was the first adult that ever treated me as a peer. Um, Dave is a Dave was a very sweet, very kind, very gentle man who, when he was on the other side of the war game table from you, turned into a demon who would reach into your chest, tear your heart out, eat it in front of you, and laugh hysterically the entire time. <laughs> Dan. And, <laughs> and Phil was brilliant. He was, and come on, the guy's a major linguistic scholar. He had traveled all over the world. And you know, reading books that he had in his library, it's like, okay, that's where he got that from. Oh, that's where he got this from. And I remember one very tender moment. Uh, the, the Minneapolis Museum of Art had a display of artifacts from Chichen Itza. And the raised causeway out to the sacrificial well was called a Sakbe, which in Tecamel is what they call the fortified road system, the Sakbe roads. And I, I next time I saw Phil, I sort of twitted him about that, and he sort of shrugged and said, I no longer remember where I get things from. And now that I've reached the age of 65, it's like, yeah, I, it's like, I know what he means. Right. So uh, they were all very imaginative in different ways. So I, I don't know. No, that's, that's great. That's perfect. Thank you. That's perfect. That's wonderful. Uh, the last question we have on the chat, are you still, it sounds like you're in a game, but are you running Ramshorn or you just do that for conventions? At this point, or as of now, I'm just doing that at conventions. Um, I'm, I'm, well, 
I have finally got all of my stuff out of storage, including a book by a British wargamer named Tony Bath called How to Run a Wargames Campaign, hmm. which, uh, among other things, it has a system for determining the high-level things going on in a world. So I'm, I am giving some thought to starting it up again. And so, and, and you're a regular, you, you've mentioned it, you're a regular at GaryCon, so if people want to try to get into a game yep. of yours, they could, they could find you at GaryCon, and I think you, you've got a blog, right? So, so, so you blog and, and you yeah, write a lot? I, occasionally, yeah. And, um, all right, where can they find your blog? Um, let's, the easiest way would be to search on Gronin's Rules of Gaming, but the actual blog name is whatever the initials are for we made up some shit we thought would be fun. So it's W-M-U-S-S-W-T-W-B-F. Got it. Well, maybe you can send us the link and we'll make sure we put it up there for people because yeah. our, our, our group is, uh, is chat. Are you on Facebook or uh, yes. Twitter or one of those? Yes, I am on Facebook under my real name, whether advisedly or not. That's how that's how I found you. <laughs> yep. And you're and, very, and you're very kind to respond and agree to come on the show. Sure. Like 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 most animals, I'm fascinated by my own image in a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Although, well, we, yeah, we and pre- I, I cannot ahead. recommend. I recommend Gary Khan very highly. Yes. And hopefully we'll be able to go back because, uh, you know, like with everything, every convention's had a challenge. And, and Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't blame Luke and the crew at all. It was absolutely the right thing to do. Oh, yeah. And I think it turned out to be necessary, right? Because I think by the time GaryCon was going to happen, you couldn't have gatherings. Yeah. yeah so. Well, you stay safe. Uh, we appreciate Thanks. it. We hope you, you are you and the you and your family are are sheltering when you can and being socially all the other stuff that we've the you know who would have thought that 2020 would be this way yeah really fortunate one of the advantages of living in a small town is it's very easy to maintain distance mm. yeah so uh, we, we really appreciate your time dan go ahead yeah i just say thank you so much so uh so we've now learned right the the triple threat Man, so uh, yes. <laughs> thank you so much, Michael, for your time. Thank You've been you. very generous with it. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to hear about your interactions with, yeah, with, well, with Three Legends. Much. It's, it's been fun talking. Okay. Yeah, nice well, to meet so you both. On, thank you. Oh, absolutely. Well, and uh, we, we, do, we do events throughout the year, and so we'll, we'll, we'll send you a note. And if you're interested in uh, spending some more time with this inanity and, <laughs> and uh, you guys can talk about Tom Bombadil and, and, I, can, and I can just – Roll my eyes and what about gnomes? You didn't ask him about gnomes, which was your. Oh, he loves style. gnomes. I, mean, I can tell. It's clear. Yeah. Well, it depends on how they're cooked. Oh, <laughs> thank you. And on that now, note, see, then with that <laughs> note, yes, we, yeah. he's, that seems like uh, are we going to do a going to do another last chorus of the song first, or just take that no, out? No, no. Well, the, well, actually, we need to get a die ten if you have one available. That's right, because every episode we rate the episode. Well, we don't rate the episode because a die. Dice don't lie, and so we ask our guests if they have one nearby to roll a d10 to see how good the episode was. This is not a, a reflection on you. Uh, if it's a low roll, right. it's us, not you. Right. I gotta see if I've got my. 
Well, you can do. Who was it who who grabbed a book from the back? Was it uh, somebody grabbed a book, a Thai book from the back? Uh, of Zeb, the Zeb Cook. Sam Cook. <laughs> I had not learned of that method. Open yeah, it up, to, to, open up open to a page. Okay, I'll just grab a book and open it up to a page, and whatever the last digit. Correct. There it is. Of the. Oh, here's a copy of C2, Module C2, Ghost Tower of Inverness. Oh, wow. we had Al Hammock on Al, 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 as well. Al That's a great. wonderful. I ran that recently. That's okay. a wonderful. There's time. a chart. I will put my finger on the chart, and the number is <laughs> one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're never having you on again. Or we have yeah. to have him back because it's got to get better. It can't get any worse. The reason I even can tell you why it turned out a one. Yes. Because in OD&D, there's no such thing as a 10-sider. Ah, well, that makes sense. There you go. 20-sider yep. numbered zero through nine twice. That's right. It's there you skewed. go. It's, I, we... I, we I, <laughs> The fact that we forced you to into this uh, was, was the challenge there. We but. tried to, we tried to yeah. force an od and into a first edition podcast. Yeah. It, it's a there square peg. It didn't fit. A, have you ever heard of FASA, a game company called FASA? Yes, yep, FASA. Yeah, yeah a guy, guy named Forrest Brown worked for FASA, and back in the 80s, he took some of the early soft plastic dice that you know came from the scientific supply company, sliced them open, the things have got gigantic air bubbles in them, which are and widely off center. So, yeah, <laughs> they were never very good dice to begin with. But so, why is this dice always roll twenties? Well, they or tens yeah. in this case. So, so on behalf of Grog Talk, thank you, Mike, so much. We appreciate it to all our, to the fans out there over in Asia and in the North America and in Europe. Thank you for staying on for this long. So, on behalf of Grog Talk, I'm James, and I'm Dan. And, and we will see you. And, uh, go ahead. And, and I'm Michael. And for those of you who object to my posts on Facebook, yes, I am that big a jerk in real life. Tough. Hey, okay. seems, you seem nice. Though. You seem nice to me. <laughs> well, he only flipped you off once. so That's uh, true. Uh, what was the over-under on that? I think it was three. I think we had three. So, <laughs> we did. Uh, we did. So on All behalf right. of Grog Talk, we wish you a great good evening, good morning, good night, and take care. We'll see you next time. This is Big Abushi Puppy Production. All rights reserved.